Hello and welcome to the Lost Air Podcast. I'm Garrett and I'm here with Helmet. That's me, Paul, yeah. This week, Paul, yeah. Uh, this week, we are attempting to do the people behind the music. Uh, something we planned on doing for a long, 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 long time. Um, it's just been difficult to pick six each. Yeah. Um, was. I went through a monstrous list before I kind of decided on these. And to be honest with you, two or three of them, I don't want to say half of my choices, now I'm reevaluating. So we're, we're probably. I, I, I took a while with this one. These are the producers, our favorite yeah. producers. I think we'll have to do a volume two of this anyway. Yeah, because there's some we left out. Yeah, like, loads. There was ones I wanted to do, like Martin Hanna, for instance, who made the Manchester Sound with Joy Division and stuff yeah. like that, who put like. Stephen Morris from Joy Division up on the roof is to assemble his drum kit and told him to play faster but slower. Then there's like Guy Stevens who did uh, London's Calling yeah. and while they were in the rehearsal room was or in the in the studio he was throwing ladders and chairs at them to get that go go go, 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 go get yeah. that aggro out. Yeah. Uh, so but I finally f- I picked my six. Yeah, I, pick, I I think the six I picked are a good mix of genres and styles. I did that in terms of my favorite ones. I, I don't know if I picked favourite. That's alright. No, I did it just because it was... I think half I had to try and figure out what my angle was. And I thought, oh, hang on, I'll start with my favourites. Because I know it'll be volume two. I'll tell, tell you what my problem here is that I moved to a new notebook, right? So my notebook says Lost Art Book 6. So this is my sixth notebook of uh, right. things. But it's smaller than the rest of them. And uh, I hate writing on the back of pages. No, I know what you mean. I just yeah. have a thing like, about it. I'd have it. to draw it in big. I also hate A. What is it, A3? Sorry. These are like A3. No, 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 this is like A5, I'd say. A5, whatever. And uh, it's just trying to compact it all into it. Uh, yeah. Let's just let's just get this going because I'm actually. Yeah. I've I seen your list and I, I had a quick spin through. I knew my songs, obviously, and I had a spin through your stuff earlier. Well, if you look into the playlist, you wouldn't know who the promoter, de- or promoter the fucking producer. They're not, they're not super obvious. The producer definitely but was, but unless you knew, are, are mad into knowing about producers. Yeah. But this might be a little bit eye-opening for people who I don't so. know much about... Your first one that you're going to go into now was... It's fucking outrageous. It's mental. Did you hit, give, give me a Who's your first one. It's my favourite one, possibly, is Flood. Flood is... Um, and the song I picked is uh, PJ Harvey Down by the Water. It's so good. Um... Flood has done everything I love. Most mm. of my favourite bands. And he just seems to not be thrown by anything that's given to him. And I don't know if that's to his approach. I went into the approach on all these a little bit later, but we'll go into just a bit who he is. Mm. So Flood is Mark Ellis, who uh, began working at uh, Morgan Studios in London in the late 70s. And he worked as an, a tape operator on Rick Wakeman's 1984. That was the first time he ever got near an album. Before that, he was just... The tea runner, basically, for the studio, running around yeah, the tea. And they called the him. best one started. Yeah, that's so that's what he started at, uh, I think, at about 16. And he was called Flood because there was two guys who would bring the tea, and one of them would never bring in a lot of tea. He was called Drew. And this guy, Mark Ellis, was called Flood because he'd bring all the tea as fast as people wanted it. <laughs> this is when the cure and all were in the... He in flooded the, them with tea. flooded like. them with tea, yeah. So, his first kind of big thing was in 1980 where he was... The, I think he was the mixing assistant, the assistant mixer, assistant engineer. On, on, no, yeah. no, 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 not even oh, that. Really? Yeah, the assistant mixer on Movement by New Order, Ooh. which was a huge album. Yeah, that's a, he even said it in the thing. He goes, as an eighteen-year-old, he said that was outrageous. But I'd worked my bollocks off to get mm. there, mixing stuff. That's just the mixing thing. He moved up to that assistant mixer as well. He's probably just still on an internship, oh, yeah, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, but in the mid nineties, he just became the house producer. So in 10 years after that, 
a little bit later, maybe even he was their house producer, got mm. it from engineers. Like um, Jesus, his, I had to really narrow his list of, of albums down because it's just insane. Right, Nine Inch Nails, Pretty Hate Machine, Broken, and The Downward Spiral. Fuck off. No. Everyone says Trent Reznor. Okay, but not really. You're not really. Him. So, Pretty Hate Machine, Broken, and The Downward Spiral. The three best. Yeah. You can take you can you if the rest of your if if you're only had if your final if you selection was on them, fire yeah. you'd grab those ones first. God, absolutely. You two, Zeropa Pop and How to Dismantle an Atomic mm. Bomb. That won Grammy. He shared a Grammy with you two over that, and that was a uh, produced in Dublin and Berlin. I think was that a uh, Grouse or Windmill? Would have been Windmill. I think. Yeah. Oh, wait, not even, no, it was. No, they bought Windmill, think, didn't they? Yeah. yeah so on, on, on Wiki, it just says Hanover Key. Yeah, that's Windmill. So that's Windmill. But the rest of them say Windmill, and so whatever. It's yeah. just, uh, PJ Harvey to bring you my love, which is this album. Uh, White Chalk and Let England Shake. Smashing Pumpkins, Melancholy, and Infinite. Really? Yeah. I'm, you know, weirdly, the production, hell. the production on that, to me, I've always had a bit of a weird problem with. Oh, I think, think it's, it's be- very dated, but... No, I, th- I think it's because when you have a budget and you have a double album, you can't get everything to sell. You probably, you know what I mean? But Some it still sounds, banged out. Like for that. a double album, yeah. it sounds incredible. Yeah. Um, he did Machine It as well. Did he? Yeah, he did. Arguably my favourite. Arguably my favourite. Can I argue with myself, can I? Uh, <laughs> Fighting with me. Depeche Mode, Songs of Fate and Devotion, to me, is as good as Violator. Yeah. He also worked on Violator, but he wasn't the producer. Mm. Um, that also must have been a fucking nightmare to deal with... Uh, Depeche Mode during the that Songs era. of Fate and Devotion yeah. area. Nick Cave, The Boatman's Call. And most recently, The Murder Capital album. Really? Yeah. Where the fuck did they get the money for Flood? Off a fucking <laughs> relative. Someone with a tr- tr- million euro. So they, like, obviously, The Murder Capital have had like an angle there. So they, they have a for Warner, is it? All I can tell you is about The Murder Capital. We've talked about them a, no, a no problem with times. La- very good. If someone launches with it, like, they're not, uh, what do you call them, the thrills? No. Where they launch with a whole load of money and a, and a plan Pizza and a record money, label yeah. already. <laughs> like, yeah. at least The Murder Capital are good. So I don't care how yeah. someone gets there anymore, really. <laughs> I'm just romantic of idea of people playing basements for 10 years before they get a little nope. break. I don't care We're anymore. past that now. Yeah, Let's um, be brutally honest, we're past that now. He's also acted as... An engineer or mixer for Solwax, Tom Jones, Golf oh, Rap, Meets Reb, Populi Itself, Jesus and Mary Shine, Eraser, Gary Newman, Cigaros, The Killers, and Orbital. Um, Fucking hell, sweating. Just that lad is sweating music. He was uh, one of the biggest, the, the, his first huge breakthrough as a producer. He was actually only the uh, co producer because U2, U2 used uh, multiple producers for their albums. So it was Acton Baby. Mm. Which is one of the best sounding albums is, and yeah. groundbreaking albums, to be honest with you, in rock. And he was introduced uh, to the Pest Mode by Anton Corbyn, who's the, he's, is he Belgian photographer that does all Joy Division's black and white stuff and the Pest Mode stuff? Um, he's basically the flood of photographers. That guy has a list like floods mm. of things. So I'll go in basically to his style, it's very hard to kind of put down because anytime he's asked in interviews, I tried to find, I tried to pinpoint it all week. And he was like, I, don't, I just, I take an idea that the band has and I try and see what the best way to do that is. Mm. And I won't fight with them, but I'll try and push them into doing it that way. Mm. Basically harness their ideas. I won't be, pu- I won't run them through my mechanisms. Your mechanisms, yeah. Cause that's, that's not what he does. There's a lot of producers that do that. Um, an interview, an, an interesting question during an interview that I watched just before I was left because I wanted to write this down. Um, someone said to him, do you know when you're working on a seminal album? That's a really, really good question. He goes, about three quarters of the way through it, you'll know when you're working on an album that hasn't been done before, mm. sonically or musically, or an album that isn't trying to be something else. 
I thought that was kind of interesting because yeah. he knows he knows he, said he, he admitted to himself he said he's worked on about four seminal albums I think he's worked on way more than that but yeah whatever, that's, that's what he admitted he's a very kind of well you have to assume to that most of these guys are super critical in their work as well absolutely yeah but uh, he just says look I just I make the band happy I make sure if I reckon what he means is he makes them think those ideas were theirs yeah which is what you have to do yeah. with bands so uh, Flood if I had to get an album produced it would be by Flood um, or somebody repeats this. I have another person coming up who worked with Flood a lot. Yeah. Who, and and his his influences would have been Brian Eno. Mm. Brian Eno is an influence on two of the guys that, that come I'd up. I'd say, bl- to be fair, Brian Eno is probably an influence on most of the people going to come up on this list. And music. And yeah. weirdly, Bono comes up three or four times. Really? In this. Yeah, he's got fucking fingers and a lot of poison when it comes to engineers. But he the, always went for the best engineers. This, uh, the song you picked is, is fucking wonderful. Like, it's just, it's he, he's, he, he's able to mix sonically and tightly yeah guitars synths and samples and even electronic like, stuff like it's nothing to him I had a bang at this earlier because I remember this song yeah it was the first it, big PJ Harvey yeah. song that I remember and I remember I put the headphones on like, literally like 8 hours ago I put the headphones on I played and I was like fuck me like there's there's so much going on but he yeah. spaced everything that's, out that's, that's, that's my kind of team with my producers I've yeah. picked Laird, luscious layers, yeah. but everything has a space. Yeah, that's it. That's, everything has its own little Lego little block. Space, yeah, yeah. It's, and it's, it's not it's not tripping over. No, itself. nothing's tripping over. It's so it's fucking so, wonderful. That's flood. Who's your first one? My first one is uh, super famous. Probably not even super famous these days for being a producer. It's a uh, Jimmy either Ivine or Iovine. Iovine, I think yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah. I always yeah. say Iovine, but it's it's spelled Iovine. Yeah. And uh, okay, so. He's such an influential guy, even for put, there's a couple of other producers here that are great at putting people together. He yeah. Is, he's a businessman and a. And yeah, yeah, like, okay. I found out an awful lot of stuff about Jimmy Ivine here that, that I did not know. Um, he's born in 1953 in Brooklyn. So uh, at age 19, he drops out of college and uh, he decides, I'm really into music. Like his parents had like absolute menial jobs. They were fucking nobodies really. Um, in terms of work. So he decides at 19, I'm going to, uh, I want to get into music. I, I yeah. really like listening to music. I think I can write music. Um, so what am I going to do? He gets a job uh, cleaning a recording studio. That's a mad start. Actually, yeah. yeah. Um, in the early 70s. So by the kind of mid 70s, all of a sudden he's like an assistant sound engineer in the studio. And he's working with John Lennon. He's working with Bruce Springsteen. Um, a place called The Record Plant. And uh He's, he's sitting in on the, all these sessions. So eventually he just gets to know these guys and he becomes kind of friendly with them to the point where he starts introducing them to, um, other, uh, other artists who are probably going to write songs or are producing songs or are big name artists in themselves. Yeah. Um, he, his big title that kind of made him famous was Patty Smith, uh, because of the night. Yeah. Right. Um, we could go into there's an entire podcast about because the night but Patty Smith we're not yeah going to do. and where it came from yeah and where it came and from who wrote it where, yeah exactly um, but because the night by Patty Smith and the album that's off is the one that properly kind of catapults him um, into into the stratosphere he ends up producing Belladonna by Stevie Nicks and that's around right. this time he actually gets into a relationship with Stevie Nicks he starts going out with her 
And uh, Fleetwood Mike, yeah. Fleetwood Mike, you're probably going to have sex with someone in Fleetwood Mike. Pretty much. If you're in the music industry. Exactly. <laughs> no now, offense to Fleetwood Mike. Um, as much as we could do, uh, a podcast about Patty Smith and Jimmy Iovine, we could do four podcasts about Jimmy Iovine and Patty Smith. Um, Oh, sorry about, Stevie about Stevie Nicks. Uh, there's a whole big hullabaloo about hiding fucking Stevie Nicks in a wardrobe while somebody else plays a song that it's, it's a clusterfuck of, he is essentially the Dell boy of music. Yeah. He puts people together. He, he takes, he, he, he goes, can I, he hear a song go, you know what? Can I give it to someone? They'll be like, yeah, whatever, man. Makes it into a mega hit. I'm sure they're like, yeah, cunt. Why wouldn't you give, make me a mega hit? Well, cause I'm like a fucking producer. Exactly. He takes songs that nobody else wants and realizes that this song is going to work perfectly well with another artist. Yeah. So he gets the rights to this song of somebody that nobody wants and gives it to somebody and turns it into a fucking top 10 hit. This is, this is his skill. Mm. Um, I only found this out as well. He, um, he was a sound engineer on the Voyager Golden Records. So the records that were sent into space to try and contact aliens. He was the sound engineer on. Did we mention that before? We did talk about that before. Yeah, and the Vo- uh, Voyager was a whole big thing. They recorded loads of classical music with uh, modern symphonies. Yeah. And they pressed them onto these. Uh, they were made of gold LPs that could be played. There was no... Like, tape machines were a thing, but they weren't commonplace LPs were yeah. the, the format of the time. So they made records out of gold because they would last for thousands of years. Yeah. And they put them onto the Voyager satellites and sent them out of the space. You can play them, yeah. yeah. Wreck your needle through uh, No, it'd be diamond tipped. You get, you get away with it. Right. Um, not for long, but yeah, you can play them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so he was the sound engineer on these um, fucking sessions. Because gold discs that you see given out to people are obviously not gold. No, they're just gold spray painted. Yeah. Spray yeah. Part, yeah. They'd be, uh, what, do, what do they call it? Uh, gilding, is it? Gilded. Gold gilded, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so he, he was the, the producer, uh, sorry, not producer, he was the sound engineer on these, uh, mm-hmm. Voyager things that were sent into space. Okay, so we start get, it starts, things start getting real spicy in 1990. So he's after working with a shit ton of artists. I'm going to go through a bunch of artists that he worked with now in a second, but I need to just do like 1990 up to kind of 2000-ish just to get you an idea of how important this guy is. Mm-hmm. So in 1990, he co-found, he co-founds Interscope Records. Yeah, right. That's a huge one. one of the first people he signs is Tupac. Mm. Now, around this time, he funds Death Row Records. I did not know this. I did not know that Jimmy Iovine was the money behind Death Row yeah, Records. Right? Death Row Records apparently was a subsidiary of Interscope. I had no idea. I always thought my entire life the Death Row was just its own thing. Why do I feel like I did know that? Is it not written on the? On the back of the Death Row CD is. couldn't tell you. I think it is. It might, think might be now. It might be now, but I don't think it was back then. Yeah. I always, my entire life, I always considered Death Row to be oh, fully in independent. Head, that was a link, actually. Now, I, I know, I know I've seen it in that, uh, there's a documentary on, uh, HBO documentary. It's now on Netflix called uh, The Defiant Ones. Oh, it's so Jimmy, good. It's, it's amazing. Brilliant. About Dr. Trey and Jimmy O'Fein. They eventually kind of join forces and take over the world. Um, so 1990, he forms Interscope. He signs Tupac and eventually he funds Death Row Records, which I have yeah. fucking no idea about. 2008, he starts Beats by Dre. He approaches Dr. Trey and says, let's make headphones. Yeah. Um, let's make some savage headphones. Eventually, they start off owning 20% of the world's headphone markets. And then within two years, they have 80% of the world's high-end It was clever, because you think in your head, these are the headphones that Dr. Dre would use. They definitely aren't. Exactly. 
That, no, no, that, yeah, but that, in your head you think that, but there's yeah. no, absolutely no way <laughs> in, in a million years. And you get to, there's more bass in them. We talked about this. Yeah, because you put batteries in them, that's why. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, I, like, as much as I, I didn't put Dre on this list because I don't know, if I'm to search my heart's heart, I don't think that Dre is a world-class producer. That sounds really? terrible. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, I think that, I think, After, he does, I think he does more for an artist than basic production. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But I know what but, you mean. But I don't think he's world class. Yeah, I don't. I think what he does for himself, he's he's involved in, let's say, six albums that are fucking amazing, and he's composing on them as well. Uh, I, to be honest with you, I think Melman might be the composer on right, that. I, right. That this is why I didn't add him in. I think he might be the guy who goes, I, you know, let's get a little, do a little bloop instead of boom, 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 boom. Yeah. I think that might be his thing. I think he might be an overseas conductor. Right, yeah, so there's a lot of people that are like that. Yeah, yeah. He, he's he's a big vision kind of guy. Mm. So, uh, Ivine, Ivine has worked with, this is a mad fucking list, Kansas, John Lennon, Bruce Springsteen, Patti Smith, Tom Petty, Dire Straits, U2, Simple Minds, The Pretender, Pretenders, Gwen Stefani, Lady Gaga, Iggy Azalea, B.B. King, Meatloaf, Bob Seger, N.E.R.D., Joan Jett, New Kids on the Block, Eurythmics, Rod Stewart, Tracy Chapman. I used to call them the Eurythmics as well. <laughs> yeah, the Eurythmics, yeah. I can't say Eurythmics. I'm sorry. It's Eurythmics. <laughs> well, someone told me, I was like, I can't delete some of that word. I'm sorry, it's too late. Years, yeah. Don't be saying, go, yeah. don't be giving me stupid words. The Motors, Tracy Chapman, Whitney Houston, Harry Nielsen. Like, the list so is he's, just... he's gone from sort of Americana to contemporary rock to pop to yep. folk. He's done a lot. But his roots seem to be... Like, where he makes his money seems to be off hip-hop. Oh, yeah. Well, that's where he made... If he's got Interscope, uh, which fought for Nine Inch Nails, which is what who you mentioned with Flood. Yeah. <laughs> they signed Nine Inch Nails. They ha- haunted Nine Inch Nails for like three years mm. to get them to sign. Um, Ivan did. Uh, eventually got them. But if he's funding Death Row Records, like it's... Jesus Christ, I'm with you. Um, the song I picked for Jimmy Iovine was would have been an early one for him. I picked Battle of Hell by Meatloaf. Right. He was a producer on this. Um, this is just one of these songs where uh, I, the nostalgia hurts me when I listen to the song. It's like nine minutes long, but it's still so fucking good. The only issue with it is it's so low in volume. That's like, not necessarily a bad thing. No, not the, like, the only like, problem there is that when you listen to it on a phone, I know, and you have your headphones or if on, or you're sticking on a, a playlist. Yeah, it's a beast. But if you if you're listening to that on record, where that's fine, everything else the same level, not about it. Yeah, and it's nice and yeah. warm. You can, get more, you can get more warmth and dynamics from lower, one hundred percent mixed things. I think, yeah, one hundred percent. We'll be talking a lot of shit on this podcast, lads. I'm not going to lie to you because we're not producers, but we know enough about it to hopefully. Yeah, but we, at the same time, we've both produced records that we were on. Yeah, I mean, I like kind of got boy. Yeah. We, but we've I, all sat there. But I've also worked with producers. Yeah, who exactly. Are just a different ball game. Exactly. They know exactly what they're doing. And that's not even taking in mix and engineer or the guy who or masters it. Yeah, mastering. That's yeah. where the alchemy comes in, yeah. Yeah, that's where the um, See, I picked uh, Meatloaf, Bat Out of Hell. Um, I fucking, first of all, I love the song. I love the fact that it's so complicated, yet there's actually not that much going on. <laughs> if you listen to that song, you've got this weird piano. Which is just this roll that's going on forever yeah. in her song. But the guitar is just... And the drums are just tapping away. Um, the whole thing sounds like it's live. He just found this lovely mix where it does sound like you're actually in a room with Meatloaf playing the song. It doesn't sound like a record. It sounds like you're 
in a live performance, which is what I like about the kind of IV and early stuff. And obviously, we sent up the Because the Night. When you listen to Patty Smith, Because the Night, it sounds like you're sitting next to her. Yeah, the vocals are yeah. so high, but I'm going to make a bit of a noise here. That's all right. Sorry. Make uh, your sloppy noises. You can, you can, um, I do love the production on that. I love clean production that is also warm. Yeah. So then we have two favorite things. If we're talking about production, um, also, I can't even imagine what some of these producers had to go through. I can only imagine like, the shite they had to sit through to actually get to something good. The prima donnas, the perfectionists. Pain. Like the first everything I ever got produced was only recently by a proper producer. And I'd say by the end of it, he was like, I fucking hate yeah. this cunt. And it's because it's my first thing getting I produced I never want properly. to hear this again. Yeah. He's probably like, no, just like, he's nitpicking the smallest things. I'm like, but it's, when I go in to make the second one, I won't be anywhere near no, like that. No. It's because of my first one. And to be fair, like, we've worked with two producers um, on the stuff we're doing at the moment. And they've both been very, uh, very cool with us. But I know for a fact some things I'm... Niggling that and stuff like, but that's just that's just niggler. But can I imagine? But that's a, you. A, yeah, can you imagine a fucking just straight up prima donna arsehole? Well, exactly. Well, Who takes the piss out of someone's studio? Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh the, yeah, like, yeah. We'll sit there doing do a lot of coke and yeah. fucking just shit. And what are we doing? Fucking. Here? Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, Who's your next one? My next one is a short enough one. This is Jeff Lynn. Jeff Lynn, you'll know from ELO. The delicious, the guy from ELO who writes the songs and sings the songs from ELO. Uh, he's an English producer. But he also found he's a producer as well. He's he's well as well known as a producer as the guy for me. Oh Ella. yeah, I think so. Yeah, and the traveling Wilburys, he founded them as well. Yep. Um, I think he's an unreal producer because he produces things to the style like I've just mentioned. It's spacious, warm, but also I love when people take orchestral stuff without sounding harsh or sharp. Um, to sort of. He, he does backing vocals and harmonies absolutely exactly how I like them. And I can't really describe how I like them. So what I'm trying to say is, if you want to know what, the way I like big sounding stuff to produce, just listen to Ticket to the Moon by ELO. And that's exactly what I'm trying to say. And you'll know what I'm talking about. It's warm, it's huge, but it's not over the top. Um, he doesn't have a huge list of stuff he's produced. He's basically done, outside ELO I mean, so he's basically done all of ELO, ELO stuff, a lot of the Traveling Wilburys, some of the people from Traveling mm-hmm. Wilburys like Roy Orbison and um, George Harrison. He did, uh, in 2015, he did a Brian Adams record randomly. It stands out like in the middle of the thing. His uh, style is this far mic on the drum kit for a mm. big room sort of sound and yeah. you can tell that he's definitely... Natural echo like. Yeah. And then he'll squash a lot of the dynamics and then doesn't put he, he's not fond of too much bass as far as mm. I'm aware um, which you couldn't if you're doing all that stuff you have, something has to go a little bit something has to hang back a little bit and I guess that's bass um, he's definitely influenced by George Martin and the Beatles mm. absolutely but uh, his list isn't massive and he I have a few of those as well yeah, yeah. so but because he's only really gone right I'm a producer I want to produce ELO stuff to the best standard and I absolutely loved production on ELO so listen to Ticket to the Moon the, the song I put up like, there that, that song like, when I listen to that song like it's mad spacey yeah and he has this uh, he has well that's, these, the, that's the concept of the whole yeah. Uh, album yeah and he has this cool um, kind of a uh, warbling kind of synthesizer but yeah. he, he knows well enough to bring that synth back in the mix when like the orchestral stuff's going to come in and even then it's still quite loud but yeah. I don't mind it being as, if that's the one bugbear of it is the synth that solo you're talking about mm. it's almost too loud but, but like you said things make room for it and if you listen to that on a record it sounds just like velvet some of these things have to be listened to on 
incredible headphones to hear yeah. because your you don't realize this but your headphones are making their own mix oh yeah exactly especially if you're listening to spotify everything's compressed to shit yeah to be sent even if you've got your bit rate set to the highest and uh, yeah. to like extreme bit rate on fucking spotify it's still nothing like what an original lp or an, yeah. the original mix even the cd sounds like and then you're like we always say you're at the uh mercy of the weakest link of your sound yes. system so that could be your amp it could be your record player yeah, it, could it could be, be the cable connecting your headphones it could be, the fucking amp. It could be it could how be you've got them set up yeah. it could be where you're sitting and it's just crazy yeah i don't want to get too much into the audio file side of things but if you listen to this song you'll know what i mean but just the sheer warmth of it stick some good headphones on don't listen to it on, as well as that, if you're listening to music constantly mostly on a laptop don't yeah, I know so many people. Put a few people. hundred quid into something. I know so speakers. many fucking people that like just listen to music on like, via their laptop speakers. Oh, it's, what are you doing? Like oh, even MacBooks are great, but they're, they're still, still still a not, tiny like, little half inch speaker. Like oh, it can do nothing. You're missing so much yeah. of the music. You're missing yeah. mad shit. Going you're getting on. the like, a layer of the top of it. We are missing all the depth. Like. And that's why I think a lot of people are producing albums dynamically, very loud now and sharp. Yeah, just pierce through oh, into yeah. people's like the loudness from the, a speaker. The loudness war started in like the late nineties, early two thousands, and we're starting to kind of settle a little bit where people are getting more into dynamics. Where um, because they know eighty percent of people are just walking around with headphones in their phone. So what they're trying, what they're trying to do is they're they're trying to find this, they're they're mixing for headphones on phones. They're not mixing for LPs oh, anymore. Um, which it's is good if that's how you listen to music, but if you're just getting on the bus and you want to hear your favourite song, um, yeah. you're not really doing yourself you know, any favours. The funny thing is, the vinyl revival, do you know what hasn't caught up with that yet? The audiophile revival. And I yeah. don't even audiophile. There's people, I know, this isn't a, this isn't a dig at anyone doing this, mm. because this is a great start. This is how I started. Are buying records before they even have a player. Yeah. That's fine. And then they're buying a kind of smaller player to start off yeah. again fine but if you kind of work up to something good and you stick your records on that you start feeling the music and i don't want to yeah. sound too fucking poncy yeah. about that but uh, put less money into your buying the new records yeah. and put more money into that system into the gear yeah i mean 500 quid will get you a, a decent <laughs> proper good the, the ratio has always been whatever your budget is say your budget is 500 euro or it's 400 euro or three or whatever the ratio has always been half the money into your speakers and the rest yeah. of it into everything else. Yeah. That's always the ratio. Your speakers, as a rule, you'll keep with you forever. Mm. But you will always upgrade your amp. You'll always upgrade your turntable, whatever. Yeah. Um, but speakers are your biggest fucking worry. They're the, they're the tires of your car. Yeah. They're the last thing to hit. <laughs> 100 100%, 100%. Okay. always spend more money on your speakers than anything else don't worry about spending 600 euro on a record player and 50 quid on speakers it's not yeah. worth you're wasting your time the biggest yeah the biggest thing to do is the speakers, that's speakers. the ones that are giving you the last thing to leave the, the, <laughs> the bit that hits your ear the is the most your, important exactly, yeah. 100% yeah. so that was Jeff Lynn. Um yeah. like I said it's not a huge amount of, I have to put him as one of my favourite producers yep. uh, because because this is exactly how I like things to sound with, mm -hmm. and I love prog like ELO are not the, they wouldn't call them prog in terms if you're listening to your top 20 prog yeah. bands you probably wouldn't be ELO there but they have a prog approach to certain yeah, things yeah elements the, there, the production yeah. of this he could have produced some of my favourite prog albums better if he did it like this so that's him who's, uh, who's your next one my next one is Stuart Price aka Jacques Ducant aka Les Rhythms Digitalis oh right okay 
Um, so Stuart Price born in 1977 in North Yorkshire. Um, his most famous project to the public would be Lesra Dumstigitalis. Yeah. I still... Burn, I, burn, burn, yeah, burn. I've talked about it since the four, very first podcast we ever done. Uh, Dark Dancer, Dark Dancer by Lesra Dumstigitalis is in my top 10 records of all time. Uh, everything about it is perfect. It's not a wasted second. Nothing sounds wrong. Nothing sounds like it should be louder or uh, in the left channel or... Everything is just perfect about this album. It's 80s themed kind of electro music uh, that's kind of cheesy. He dressed up, he kind of dyed his hair red, he played guitars for the videos. Like it was <laughs> the whole thing, it was just so over the top. Um, but the album itself is amazing. So he released two albums as Les Rhythms, Digitalis, and then he done a bunch of projects as Jacques Ducant, um that were kind of somewhere between production and remixes. Um, you kind of had a weird fucking, you had a weird kind of system going on. In uh, 2001, he was hired by Madonna to become the musical director for a tour um, where she wanted to kind of remix all the songs that were going to be on the tour, um, going from her first releases to her most current releases. But she wanted to do them all a little bit different. Mm. So she hired Stuart Price to come on board as a musical director. Um, he done that. He eventually ended up working with Madonna, The Killers, New Order, Kylie Minogue, Missy Elliott, The Pet Shop Boys, Gwen Stefani, Seal, Hard Foy. The, the list is not monstrous, but it's all solid. Um, yeah, the song that you picked, the Pet Shop Boys song, right? Yeah. Uh, has That's off the, the new album. Bombastic sound that Layra and Digital Yeah. Have. So uh, I picked a song called Will of the Wisp, which is off the latest Pet Shop Boys album. I don't like them, but yeah. it's produced well. Yeah. <laughs> this song I picked because it has this... Pet Shop Boys seem to be like a, they're like the mosquito and amber, you know, they don't, uh, like, like the, the albums might sound a little bit better, but they're still trapped in time, and I still, to this day, it's 2020, and as much, the Pet Shop Boys are fine, I don't hate them, I don't love them, but I don't understand who, like, who goes out of a way to buy a Pet Shop well, Boys album? They are hampered by, first of all, how distinct his voice is, yes. and that's what turns me off them, and they almost always have to be electronic yes and that's the problem with them like i think erasure to put like a comparison in had more scope and better songs mm. and more likability factor mm. because it's very hard to like a posh fucker he's super posh jarvis yeah. cocker got away with it by being a mad cunt he actually worked uh still price done uh, done some work with jarvis cocker did he he was hired um it was heard in 2012 to create the official theme song for the 2012 Olympic Games. Right. And, uh, That's good money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, uh, he, That's the call you want to get. Yeah, he, he ended up doing a bunch of shit. Um, he, he done the 2012 Olympic Games, so every time they were, they were showing like, highlights or results, the music you heard in the background, uh, Stuart Price made. Uh, he done a fuck ton of remix work. Uh, I mean, a fuck ton of remix work. That's good money as well. Yeah. I think Aphex Twin used to get between one and three grand for remixes. Yeah. And the hilarious thing about them was, I think I might have mentioned this before, he'd already have compositions made up. And he just... And if they're in the same key, I don't think he'd even change much and call it that. And people were like, yeah, I don't get how that's related to my song but here's your two rounds whatever anyway (laughs) I I know uh, Price has a thing where he prefers to keep vocal arrangements Um, if he's remixing a song good he he understands good yeah because you can't sorry just you can't 
pull a song out of someone's psyche, fucking around and throw it back and expect yeah, them to like it. Yeah. Unless you capture the best hook of it, and even then... The, the only remix... Well, the only remix I prefer over the original is the Pendulum remix of Voodoo People. I think it's a better song than the original. I think it's more enjoyable, yeah. yeah. I don't... Oh, it's hard. It's, it's 50-50 for me. I, it's, it's, it, it, the, the reason I like that Pendulum one is they take one of the kind of sub-riffs and make it the main riff... And they make the main riff a background riff. Yeah, I will say that remixing the Prodigy and coming up with a, with a, a fucking problem for me and you. Yeah, to pick one. Yeah, is a win already. Oh, 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 easily. Yeah. Um, so he done a, he done remixes for the Pesh Mode. He done remixes for Katy Perry, uh, Coldplay, U two. He ended up producing the solo album for Brandon Flowers from the Killers. Um, Killers they, have come up. A few, sorry, they're going to come up a few times yeah. in this because we've already got him working. We've already got him. Um, Working with Shira Price and Flood, and he's going to yeah. come. The killer's going to come again. So again, like you two, they're they're doing what Col- and Coldplay as well do the yeah. same thing. They copy the you, they follow you two. What are you two doing? Well, that's what, what they producers want to do. are they getting? Yeah. We want to sound like that. Yeah. That's what they want. To yeah. And um, this Pet Shop Boys uh, song, Will of the Wisp. It's like I said, it's off the latest Pet Shop Boys album. I really like it. I gave it fucking two or three spins on the bus. I'm walking around. I'm not a massive fucking Pet Shop Boys fan. They're, they're fine. I don't hate them. I'm not I'm not against them like you are, to a degree. I'm not even against them. I just think there's bands like Sparks and Erasure. That's that do done it better. better. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. There's something about Pet Shop Boys. It's just this iconic fucking brand. I love like, it. It's a sin. I can't course. argue that yeah, song. Yeah, um, There's something about the way all of their albums have always been. It doesn't matter what year they come out. They always sound like they came out in the 80s. But they do take advantage of kind of modern recording techniques. Yeah. And that gives them this... Yeah sharpness yet that feel like you can absolutely tell that like the lads in the Pet Shop Boys probably haven't actually enjoyed music since like 1987 they didn't look like they were enjoying it when they were doing yeah. it yeah but the, the but what they're doing is they're taking this like 1986-1987 model and they're like okay what's a cool new synth and how do we make it sound absolutely outrageous yeah like the other guy I don't know his name the, the, not Neil fucking what's his face not yeah. the singer the other guy is clearly great I found myself a little music nerd yeah He's like, going to do it all. He's like, like uh, Vince from the Pesh Mode uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, Razor. Exactly. Uh, fucking, sorry. Um, M- my big thing, my big, big thing with Pet Shop Boys is that I don't understand who actually listens to them. I don't know why the Pet Shop Boys are putting out new, more, uh, new albums as opposed to just doing classic hits tours or appearing on these like best of the 80s fucking things. Yeah, like I don't even know any gay people that like them. And to, well, me, to, me, I was, to me, I was grown up going, oh, they're gay. that's a gay band. Yeah, yeah. No, not in, an aggra- not in a fucking insulting yeah. way. Just like, in, back in the day, even they're though were, I thought... 100% a gay band. Uh, yeah. They're Rob's a gay band. Uh, doesn't matter what anybody says. <laughs> that's okay to start <laughs> from, the, from the gay community and have a gay following. It's okay to be... But in, <laughs> in my, it's not cool to say, a gay band. Yeah. But I, as a kid, and I was like, well, they're a gay band. I didn't probably listen to a fucking gay band, but I just didn't like them. Yeah. Because he sounded super posh in English. And I had to think about that as a kid, obviously, because, you know... Railing lads up the whole world hunting foxes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um... Yeah, I, 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 Pet Shop Boys, I, I do like, but I don't understand who actually listens to them. I don't know why they're not on, like, now this is what I call music, fucking 2020. <laughs> the tour with fucking, I don't even know who else. Kim Wilde. Schooly D. Kim Wilde, yeah. Alphaville, Alphaville, <laughs> and uh, who have we got? Oh, Kid shit. and Play. <laughs> fucking. Major. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't if understand. If they're real it. lucky, Mark Hammond. If you're super lucky, like that, that's, he uh, he will do it for a few quid every now and then. I've seen absolutely. him do it. Yeah. He needs yeah. that. He needs he, that for the heroin. He's uh, arena tours. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Sir Price, 
uh, Lesnar and Zitalis. I just, I didn't know he'd done a lot of production work and I went into it and I actually listened to the stuff he produced. I was like, this all sounds kind of familiar. Yeah. Um, this is akin to one of my favourite albums of all time. But like, by God, the lad knows how to get like a good performance out of people. Who's your next one? My next one is Daniel Lanoy. Okay. Uh, the song I picked is one of my favourite songs that he's produced. Uh, Peter Gabriel, In Your Eyes, from the album So. There's actually a great documentary on, I think it's Amazon have all those classic albums. Netflix don't have them because that's mm. not cool enough for Netflix. There's not enough sexy child killers uh, on Amazon, <laughs> but <laughs> documentaries about sexy child killers. He's so sexy. Dirty Bundy's. Dirty Bundy's. So sexy though. Yeah, so if you search on Amazon Prime, they do have the classic album collection that you'd see on. I don't have Amazon Sky or something like that. Well, I have it for deliveries, like I said before. But so I just get the get the TV shows as well. Mm. I remember watching this go. This is one producer where I will say, my favorite work he's done is is uh, with Peter Gabriel, but he's also done U2's Unforgettable Fire, mm. Joshua Tree, Actung Baby with Flood and Brian Eno. He's also done albums for Bob Dylan after he was recommended to him by Bono. He's done uh, Neil Young. He's done stuff for Brian Eno, just for Brian Eno. He's done Amy Lou Harris and uh, The Hot House Flowers. Really? Yeah. Fair. I think he may have done some stuff with Sinead O'Connor as well because it's crazy how much these people moved in the same circles with Bono, um, Sinead O'Connor and the kind of trifecta of Daniel mm-hmm. Lanoy, Flood and Brian Eno. Um, he's Canadian actually. He's a musician and songwriter before even he's a producer. Um, his his style of his style of writing I want to go into because I haven't talked much about any of these people's writing a bit and he's kind of the one he uh, he's he's mad into uh, something you love uh, lap steel guitars. Oh, I hate them so much, lads. <laughs> lads, they hurt me. Yeah, they hurt me. Listen, yeah. So actually, I'll go into the story about kind of uh, Saul a little bit, just really briefly. He he uh, he was using the fair. Like, Peter Gabriel was using the Fairlight synth, which is this massive legendary synth. And um, I could, I can't, I can't really put it because I'm not a producer and I'm particularly great at explaining what I like about production, which is a great thing to say on this podcast. I'm gonna use uh, a quote from Chris Roberts from Classic Rock, and he says, um. Lanois' production on Soul was textured with ambient details and immaculate warmth, giving each note room to breathe. It's textured, lavish, without being sterile. And that's mm. literally, when I read that, I went, that's what I want to say. I'm not just going to steal that quote. Just nailed it. I'm just going to mix his quote up and pretend mm. it's mine. That's exactly what it is. Now, I know that he worked, like Peter Gabriel, a lot of bands put their name on the production credits with the producer, yeah. which is wanky. Because I know that sometimes that's bullshit. I think in this case, Peter Gabriel is super hands-on and did work with... There's also an Irish guy who worked on this album as well. Like, I fucking can't remember his name, but he was the mixing guy. Mixing guys are Flannerty very, very McGillicuddy. His name is Keith something or something. Bollocks. Um, his own stuff... Actually, when he's producing stuff, we'll go into the stuff he produced for Brian Eno. And this is a technique he took from Brian Eno they create the basis of the song the backbone and then they add loads of stuff to it but instead of whittling that stuff down they take the middle out Hmm. they take the entire backbone out so and then re-listen to it and the backbone is already being made by the other bits Hmm. fitting around it so it could be a heavy bass line it could be the drum so that's how ambient music is created and Brian Eno and ambient music Jenga music 
I'm trying to figure out what way you do it. It's like deboning a rayfish. Yeah. So if, if the bass is working around a particular, let's yeah. say, a synth, yeah. the bass is working around, the drums are working around, but, the guitars are working around, we know, take we, out we the know synth. people that we talked about, like Lee Scratch Perry, who will add everything and take out the bits around the edges. Mm. His style... Take the meat out. Is to take the meat out and see does the rest still hold hold mm. together. Basically hold it around the same notes, the same changes. And that's when you get ambient music at its most... Uh, I think I read a quote from Brian Eno saying that he wants his music to be accessible as easy in the background as it is to be completely focused on. <coughs> so it's just there if you want it. Mm. You can listen to it without it being intrusive to what whatever you're thinking or doing. But also if you sit down and focus completely on it with headphones or something like that, you're getting the full whack of it. That's crazy. It's just crazy to think about making music like that because I couldn't pull the backbone out of a song. If I was doing that, I couldn't no. do. It. I, I feel because I, I couldn't listen to it with new ears again. Well, chances are the the backbone is what you were putting the effort into in the first place. Of course, and that's why that's my problem is I don't, I get bored and I don't add enough. Uh, so so he calls them garnishings and ornaments. Hmm. So he puts garnishing and ornaments on the backbone and the main idea of a song, but then strips that away, hoping that the rest of it will keep the the shape of the song. So that's kind of crazy. He's hmm. um. Three of the albums that he's produced have won Best Album at the Grammys. Really? That's quite a lot. Yeah. Like, all these people have been nominated for Grammys, especially the next guy I'm going to mention, but to have won three Grammys, and Daniel Lanoy, I've known his name for a long time, but he mm. wouldn't be a household name in music for the average punter. Mm. Um, he, uh, some of the things he scored, Red Dead 2, some of the music in Red really? Dead 2, and one of the songs in it, and the team for David Lynch's uh, Dune. Oh, very good. That with Brian Eno. So yeah, uh, they have a lot of albums together, and I, I haven't got the time to even dig into. Yeah, I, I, talked to, I talked about Brian Eno before on the listener submission podcast. He, he, I, there's, there's actually listener guides on where to start because mm. it's glam rock. Because Brian Eno used to be in a uh, Roxy music, mm. so you could start there or the band before that and after, and go into his ambient stuff as well. So you can't really mention Flood and. Daniel and I without mentioning Brian enough. Mm. So we've covered mm. those three now. Who is your next one? My next one is uh, Tim Simonon or Simonon. I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's Simonon. Oh, the guy that did Ultra. Uh, yes. Yeah. Uh, so he was the producer on Ultra for Depeche Mode. That's, uh, that's literally the only know, reason I picked him. Do you know what? That's mad because I was thinking about this today. That came out in 1997, mm. as, did ult- sorry, as did Pop by U2, U2 yeah. which Flood did. Mm. So obviously there was a fight to who got flood. I think so, maybe. But this album sounds like a harsher. I'm glad Flood didn't do this. I'm yeah. glad Tim Simeon is it. I think Simeon. I'm not Simeon, sure. Uh, did this or Simeon or like, Simeon? I don't know. He took enough from grunge. That yeah, I don't think Flood would have. Yeah. Now this is where it gets kind of weird, right? I, I picked the uh, Depeche Mode barrel of a gun because it's oh, it's up there, like it's fucking outrageous. Um, Tim. Simonon is the guy behind uh, Bomb the Bass. He was the main guy. Oh, hey. Yeah. He's oh, so, so, there's, a, there's a little thing going off in my head going, yeah. I knew that. So he's the Bomb the Bass guy. Um, he, okay, it's kind of, it's, it's weird. Bomb the Bass had a shit, shit ton of albums and everybody kind of liked the way they sounded because he had this weird thing where he would program like a little bass line, a little drum line, and the rest of it would be sample based. Right. So he just take a lot of chopped up samples and just uh, pitch them and fuck them on top of like a bass 
fucking lion and a and 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 a drum sample. About that guy's name that's twigging me, and I can't figure out what it is. I, I, I tell you, I, I I'm almost certain I know exactly what you're going to talk about. It's something me and you have talked about a thousand. Actually, there's two things that me and you have talked about before on this podcast, and uh, he is involved in both of them. Um, first of all, I have to talk about the song. I think it's Simonon. It could be Simonon. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, it sounds like a stuttered cinnamon. Doesn't it? Simonon. Um, that's real bad. I'm sorry for saying that. What did you say? It's, it's, it's a Simonon. <laughs> uh, I said it again. Double sorry. It's because I asked it to be you did, yeah. on me. Um, I have to talk about the song. First I used to start sometimes. Did you? Just grew over, yeah. Really? So, yeah, so I just should mention that. Yeah. Um, I used to come three times, and I grew out of that as well. What, what does that mean? Like, I could do it three times in a row. I can't anymore. Too old. Really? Yeah, I can't do it anymore. Oh, no, yeah. I done it seven times one night, and I had to just eat pasta and eggs and water for ages. Many times? Few. Few. <laughs> 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 um, the, the pacing... You know what? The production of the song is fantastic, but the way the song barrel of a gun is actually put together the pacing of it it never races towards the end like when you hear the song in your head it's different from what the way the song actually is yeah and this is why i like this album this time of year for music this year for music around this year it was so good for mixing yeah it's, it's th- like think about what this album is right yeah it's 80s sort of gothy new romantic meets grunge meets modern electronic meets industrial yeah an industrial and and this album never got outdated. It never, sorry, no, it was never, still, never, it still sounds to me. This is the only depression that you can't pick what year it came out from unless you knew what year it came out from. This you could have came out in mid 2000s, easy, which is easy t- 10 years. Yeah, after could it, it did. It could have came out when Downward Spiral came out, it could have came out when Pretty yeah. Hate Machine came out, it could have yeah. came out when OK Computer came out. It, it you'd doesn't know, matter. You'd know, it wasn't. Around the same time as Depeche Mode, or sorry, Downward Spiral, only because of how clean the production yes. is on it. Yeah. And it's, 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 fun. it's such a great album. It's such, so well produced. Like, it's, uh, like, they, Depeche Mode, this was Depeche Mode increasing their street cred. I find it mad that I don't know much about this guy, and he produced Ultra. Yeah. It, and the producers they used before he did, this. He didn't do an awful lot else. He done loads That's of what mad I'm saying. weird shit. That's such mad a weird, weird one. Shit. I'd love to know how yeah. they got on board with this guy. Apparently they, okay, right, they heard... Just, just to mention, the other time was that time that there, the Flood was at a Depeche Mode concert. Because yeah. he, well, he he got fucking shipped to all their concerts for free. Mm. That's how he met you too. So these guys are hanging around each other lows. But yeah. how did this guy... Apparently, uh, Tim done an album for Gavin Friday. Gavin Friday again, is another person that mixes in with the Brian Eno. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Nyke. So he done an album called Shag Tobacco. And apparently it sounds... He's a Violent Femmes, by the way, you know. But yeah, so he heard fucking... Uh, Depeche Mode heard Shag Tobacco by Gavin Violent Femmes? The Virgin Prunes. The Virgin Prunes, yeah. I could, I'm so glad I caught that quickly because it's built with 10 people and I was <laughs> having a fucking aneurysm right now. Um, so Depeche Mode heard Shag Tobacco by Gavin Friday and they were like, that sounds really fucking interesting. By a guy who makes electronic music but dealing with like a traditional kind of style band. And they signed them up instantly. They were like, listen, we're making this album called Ultra. The songs are a little bit different from what we've done before. It's definitely synth-based, but we want to bring in the guitars and the drums. It's, it's beautifully aggressive. Yeah. We, we we wanted this. This is our fucking heavy metal. That's album. what I'm saying. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not the fact that they couldn't get flood. Maybe it's just they went. 
it's gonna have softer edges with flow. This, uh, this apparently, this I, I'm gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. I haven't heard Shag Tobacco, but I'm, I'm going to listen to it after after reading this. Um, apparently, Shag Tobacco was just one of these albums that everybody in the music industry heard and went, "Fuck me!" Like, like where did you get that from? Mm. And it was because of Tim Simonon or Simon and whatever yeah. his fucking name is. Um, I like Kevin Friday. A lot of people in Ireland and the music industry go, "Ah, no, I don't know, man." Every time I've heard an interview, heard an interview with him, I can see how. People might not, but it's, I don't know. He's I, the guy that, he's, he's Bono's best mate. Best though, yeah. You know what I mean? I never met him. I met mates of his and they were assholes. Yeah, um, well, that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know him. Deep down, past all the rock star bullshit, I have a funny feeling he's telling enough. He's probably, I, I'm pretty sure he's been here, but I, yeah. I don't know if I've actually ever met him. Now, there's one thing, when I read it, I was like, holy shit, like, this, this one, half of the reason I picked him is because the album sounds really good. The song in particular is fucking outrageous. The other half of the reason is he signed a deal in the late 80s with the Bitmap Brothers. Who no make video way. Games, yeah. They make Speedball too. Yep. And Chaos Engine. Yeah. <sighs> so the Bitmap Brothers, if you are me and Helmet Age, the Bitmap Brothers were like their game developers who made games for people like us. Yeah. They were like the prodigy of game developers. Exactly. They just had that. Cool. Like the artwork was fucking balling. Oh, so the games themselves were balling. The soundtracks actually, were fucking real. A beautiful art book based on there is their stuff. There on the Bitmap Brothers stuff yep. released a few years ago, and I really want to get it because the artwork alone, yeah, the painted artwork, but uh, the games themselves were. They, they, a lot of their covers were done by yeah, uh, like I think Glenn Fabry done some, and uh, fuck me, my life. The guy doing Slania for two thousand AD. My brain is cabbaged. I had the maddest day. In the history of the yeah, world today, crazy yeah, I'm sweating like my, my soul is sweating. It's very interesting. Today. We can't talk about it. We can't talk about it. Yeah. Um. So he got he got signed to do a lot of work with the Bitmap Brothers. Um. He started in the game called uh, uh, Exanon Two. Xenon Two. Xenon Two. Yeah. I, I had the first one. The first one was really good. Um. A game called Mega Blast. And uh, so he jumped on there and he done the entire soundtrack for that. And he had to do multiple different versions. Um, of the soundtrack for Amiga, for Commodore, for fucking Atari, for whatever. And that's not a simple case of going, right, I want no. that ape. He probably yeah. had to redo yeah. every bit Everything, of oh. Apparently there was like a, there was one that came on like 10 floppy disks that had the actual soundtrack where it had vocals on it. And, no way. And then you had like the Atari version, which came on two floppy disks, which just had this kind of synth lines yeah. mimicking the vocals. And that's kind of shit. So he jumped on and done that. Um, like I said, Shag Tobacco was the fucking one, and then uh, the Peshma would kind of grew. Yeah, be very them. interesting to hear that name. Yeah, I'm, I'm very, I'm very into it. Um, after he finished Ultra for the Peshma, he decided to take a break for a couple of years. I'd say that. Well, that, that well, was, that, I think were, that was his first big I was album. Say, I was going to say, like the last one was like, that we talked about. Uh, Songs of Fate and Devotion was actually, I think, possibly post Violator. God, I'm a big Depeche Mode fan. I can't remember which one. No, that that was when they were like fucking. This was the comeback album. Yeah. So maybe these were actually all right with each other by then, not killing each other, overdosing. And I think this is the clean album. Yeah, this was maybe. This is the clean album. Where they spent time actually putting songs together. This is one of the best best comeback albums of all time. 100%. So he took a break after making Ultra. He was just burnt out. He said he'd worked his bollocks off for like 10, 12 years. He couldn't do it anymore. He took an absolute break. And a couple of years after taking this break, he said, you know what? I might get bombed the bass back together again. Um, so we put Bomb the Bakes back together again. They played a couple of festivals. He had fun doing it and he kind of started start getting interested in doing production and remixing yeah. again. He ended up doing a bunch of work for like, uh, he was the executive producer on Buffalo Stance by Nina Cherry. 
That's mad. Yeah, so he was fucking, he's one of the guys responsible it for it. sounds brilliant, but not driven. Yeah, yeah, he just <laughs> does whatever he wants to do. So he done uh, Buffalo Santa Manina Cherry, work, like, like we said, Depeche Mode, he done stuff for Ja Wobble, he done a couple of songs for Sinead O'Connor, um, he done songs for Seal, he done that fucking big Lightning Seeds album that every, I can't remember what the fuck it was. The, the only album I ever had with him was coming the home, shy, whatever the oh, fuck it is. Oh, it's Whatever. It's a funny story about Sinead O'Connor and producers. I've would have loved to have been a producer. I think it was about seven years ago when she had her Facebook and she was a bit... Oh, she was unleashing the yeah. fury on Facebook. One Christmas day, she went on Facebook and went, I need some recording studio, a producer right now <coughs> uh, to record a song I have today on Christmas day. Really? And we're just thinking, fuck, man. I give Mick, she's give, a, Mick, give Mick from Track Mix a yeah, ring. Exactly. <laughs> she's a, as we speak, she is hunting Blind Boy on Twitter to go onto the podcast. They got to wear Blown Boys podcast. She should get on there. No. What are you talking? You, sorry, sorry, hang on. No, no, as in no. What? I wouldn't be able. You wouldn't be able to have, be able to have one of my favourite artists of all time. Well, I, I would, so I'm, I'm, You do it on your own. Yeah. You can do art. I'll be the last bit. I couldn't do it. Um, also, uh, Tim, this is real weird, was uh, the executive producer and main songwriter on Naomi Campbell's only album, Baby Woman. <laughs> Baby, baby woman. woman yeah Naomi Campbell put an album out and he produced that it that sounds like a reggae album baby woman mm, baby woman uh, yeah that's Tim Simonon or Simonon who knows how to pronounce it who's your next one my next one is the big one that gotta be the biggest one next to Barry Gordy who didn't make the cut for me today it's Quincy Jones oh like come on the reason I picked Quincy Jones is because he's a fucking renaissance man he does everything mm. from the ground up so not only is he, he, I think he has 70 something Grammy nominations. His albums have 70 something Grammy nominations, 28 Grammy wins, Fuck. including some of his own. And then the only person on this list who has a Grammy Legends Award. Which Grammy is the, Legends. Yeah, as in Grammy Legends Award. Yeah. He's uh, 60 years in the music industry. Multi instrumentalist, songwriter, composer, arranger, which actually arranger alone is big what, deal. What a big deal at the time, back years ago, mm. decades ago. It still is, but like for what he was doing at the time, people come in and go, right, I need. Remember when orchestral stuff was coming into music and people go, right, I need an arrangement for this because like, none of our band play any of this music. Mm. So it needs an arranger. That's where he was really raking it in at the time. He composed the scores for the Italian job mm. in the heat of night. With a Jesus. Sydney Potier, uh, the getaway and the color purple. Sydney Potier, I could not think of Sydney Potier's name there for a minute. I was like, Sydney. He's also a film and TV producer. He produced, and this is what a song I picked is Michael Jackson's "Get Off the Floor." He produced. You don't like that song? No. Okay, stupid. I know, stupid opinion, but whatever. It's just it's too disco for me. That's beautifully disco, I think is what you're trying to say. Uh, <laughs> produced three of Michael Jackson's best albums. Absolute no doubt about <coughs> Off The Wall, Thriller and Bad being mm. the best ones. People say, we talked in the podcast about uh, Red Is The Last Art, Art, Red Is The Last Art podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I brought up the fact that Dangerous was the one I went, oh, the production is totally different. That was uh, Terry Blackstreet. 
fucking hell, my brain's gone to shite. That was when I knew there was a difference between Quincy Jones's mm. production. Um, he's great at producing kids as well. <laughs> like Dave Grohl. No, he's got like producing kids. Like he's been married three times, seven, seven children, from, several teen from children. Women. He works closely with Bono from U2 on a lot of different charity events and a lot of charity efforts. You mean tax write-offs? Oh, shit, son. Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, no, you did He's released massive amounts of his own music. No. Really? Yeah, I absolutely. Never heard of yeah. That. Yeah, no, he has. He's a really talented musician. He started off playing in bands in studios did he keep did all he, the best shit for himself no but he imagine. was he was, imagine just, his albums he was just, just a session musician as well at one stage as well I imagine think. his like his actual yeah. albums are like fucking chambers of gold of absolute hits like Jeez, yeah but i don't know i don't know he's produced albums for dizzy gillespie little richard and frank sinatra oh, well he's composed or arranged for louis armstrong ray charles and count basie um he said that when you're a producer I'm going to go into the, the approach aspect because at the end of them I wrote the kind of approach or mm. style of that, of that person and um, he said that he was asked is there any, influ- any any people that influenced you regarding production and initially he said Jesus Christ son initially he said no I hate the way they all worked mm. but then he went into he gave a few names now I'm not going to mention them here because I don't recognise them this is back in the fucking the way they 60s you know what I mean so he is the only person, I have it here written here somewhere, who has, to hear this, <laughs> one of the very few producers who's had a number one record in three consecutive decades. Fuck. 60s, 70s, and 80s, obviously. That's a big 90s, deal, he to wasn't, be fair. Uh, yeah. Um, his approach, not musically, because like, I mean, how do you get into his approach to music? He just knows what sounds good. He'll tell an artist, I think he's told Michael Jackson numerous occasions, do not do that, do not do that, please don't do that. Don't do this. Do that. Yes, go with that. Release that. Don't release that. Um, his approach regarding handling uh, the musicians was the funniest bit. He goes, you're part babysitter and part shrink. Yeah. And you that would makes be. Sense. Yeah, you absolutely sense, yeah. would be. Yeah. He is just one of the most successful people in the industry of all time. Quincy Jones is fucking... Jesus, he's touched so many incredible things. A funny story before we move off him. Because I wanted to put a funny story. Because I wanted to find, try and find stuff about Michael Jackson. He won't really say anything bad about Michael Jackson. Not, he won't even really talk negatively much about him. I wanted to find a funny story about maybe Thriller album or something like yeah. that. And the only thing you could find is once Bubbles the monkey bit his daughter, who is Rashida Jones from Parks and Recreation and The Office. Oh, yes, yes. You, yeah. Yeah, we brought this up before. She yeah. is stunning. You know, you'd know her. You'd know her if you saw her. That's Quincy, jo- Quincy Jones' daughter. Um, he has... Weirdly, never, and he, this is so strange. I found this sentence really weird, enough for me to put it in. He's never had a studio in his home, ever. Really? He said he won't do it. He just he goes, goes to other places. One, one or the other. That's my house, it's not my studio. Hmm. So he goes, the recording studio is a sacred and hallowed place, and he always leaves room in the room itself for God to walk through. Oh. A lot of bollocks that, yeah, yeah, but whatever, you know, whatever it is. So look, that's a quick breakdown of Quincy Jones because it can only be one in a what, five, ten minute segment about yeah. him in the middle of the producer's I podcast. Spill beer you, you, could do, page. You, you could do, like you said, two podcasts on Quincy Jones alone. Easy. Uh, the three Michael Jackson albums <laughs> are the sound that defined my youth in a good way. Uh, who's your next one? <laughs> Rizza, Rizza, Razor. This album is amazingly produced, to be fair. Uh, I had to pick the Rizza. Uh, Rizza's born in 1969. 
as a uh, Robert Diggs, aka Bobby Diggs. Um, uh, I'm not going to go too deep on Wu Tang stuff. What I will say is that uh, from 1990 to 1995, RZA is essentially untouchable. Nobody in the world ever comes near what RZA does um, with a fucking with like an, an Akoi or a that machine. Like there's just nobody. Um, after that, it gets a little bit fucky. But essentially everything RZA touches between 1992 and 1995, you've got a three-year three window where everything is just, it could not be improved upon. Uh, I picked uh, Four Chamber um, of Liquid Swords by the Jizza slash the Genius. This is your favourite album of all my, isn't it? It's my favourite. It's not even my favourite. I, if I had to put my balls on the line, um, if I gave everybody in the world... Uh, 20 hip-hop albums to listen to, and I said, come back to me with what you think the best is. I think I'd have to, I'd have to put my balls in the chopping block and say, a good percentage, at least over 51% is going to come back and say Liquid Swords by Jizza is the, the greatest hip-hop album of all time. Um, it's, it's so perfect. It, it fucking hurts to listen to. Um, Rizza had this particular style, um, of making songs that was, uh, Kanye West came out and said, "Like, there's no Kanye West production without RZA." This, it, it just I read that it actually does not happen. Um, he had this weird thing where he go digging for weird old soul records and old funk records. <coughs> he was one of the first guys to like cut up. He had a machine. The machine would do 12, 12 second samples, ten to twelve second samples, depending on the bit rate, and you could uh, you could kind of stretch them out. Right. So we talked about it before that Kanye West was known as the Chipmunk guy. Because he would take soul records and he takes like, uh, ain't no love in the heart was, in the city. Uh, you said it was uh, Timberland, no? No, no, no. Timberland uh, was the 8-bit guy. Timberland done the Game Boy oh, music. Oh, yes. He was, he was famous for doing, like, taking the Game the Game Boy 8-bit chip music, uh, chipset music, and making that famous. Yeah. Uh, Kanye was the, the, what they used to call him, the chipmunk guy. So you take a, ain't no love in the love in the city, and fucking Kanye, like, ain't no love, love, love. And he tried. Oh yeah, he right? did. Yeah, Kanye. But yeah, you know start. what? Normally, I'd fucking hate that. Yeah, but, but I don't know. You have to remember that at, when Kanye made that massive, the only other person doing it was RZA. Yeah. So Kanye took, and he's given an interview saying like that without RZA's production style in these early fucking albums, there's absolutely no Kanye West. He, he they, they fucking one hundred percent. It's it's not a thing. Um, Kanye said himself that fucking. Like the influence that he drew from the early Wu Tang stuff was the reason that he is like one of the biggest hip hop producers in the world. Yeah. Uh, I picked, like I said, Four, Four Chamber uh, has he was on it. Jizza, obviously, because it's off his album. He is, rated, he is rated just based on this album as to be one of the best produ- hip hop producers in the world. One hundred percent. And it's, like you said, this is not a career producer. That, well, sorry, I'm not saying he's not. He's not like well known for. Well, he's a producer he's, MC, which was that's, that's a whole that, other thing. Like that's what I'm saying. He's known for this, but still to be considered by most people in hip-hop to be one of the best producers in the yeah. world based on this short period of... Three years. Yeah. Three years he reinvented hip-hop. Like, the the, the whole style of that kind of gritty, lo-fi, kind of sample-based fucking cuts. There was nobody else like it. Um, he, he actually done... He worked on that... Um, Watch the Throne. 
He produced oh, songs. Yeah. He produced songs for Jay Z and Kanye on the album. Watch the Throne is finally on Spotify, Spotify after yeah. years of title. Yep. Now it's not a perfect album, but it is like I said before, a dick measuring contest between two yeah. of the best people in the business. And they don't get on anymore, or maybe they do. And just, who knows? But Watch the Throne was when they were both at at their peak. Yeah, but consider this. Okay, to, consider this. So we've got like. But sorry, just before you say yeah. that, can you imagine a producer? Of the biggest hip-hop artist in the world. Because Jay-Z for a while was. Yeah, 100%. Imagine you're a producer. Imagine thinking down the line, sometimes, someday, I'm going to release a split album with this producer. Mm. Who I kept in the shadows for years. That's mental. Yeah, batshit mad. Now, double think that, right? Double think you got Jay-Z, the biggest fucking lyricist MC in the entire world, takes his old producer... Who absolutely has delusions of grandeur? That, yeah, that, but that, that, that weirdly works. That, that, that turn out yeah. to be correct. Okay, yeah. so you've got these two guys who all of a sudden are now are two of the, their biggest names in hip hop, and they're looking at each other, going like, "What are we going to do about this album? Like, this could be the biggest hip hop album like mm. ever." Who do we get? The fucking RZA. Yeah. Like, there's no one else. So they bring the RZA in I, now. RZA, I think, only done one or two songs. This is the way. That, that's the only way that album and a lot of rap albums can work at that stage of the game for the artist like this. You're yeah. not going to get one guy producing that. No, album. no, you it's throw everybody team. at it. You throw everybody at it. We're going to get to somebody very, very interesting. Um, the last one in this podcast, somebody extraordinarily interesting mm. um, that has a similar problem. Uh, just go through a list of stuff that RZA has worked with. Uh, like I said, Jizza uh, slash the genius. The, the reason it's Jizza genius is that when, before Wu-Tang, there was two guys in Wu-Tang Rizza and Jizza had previous contracts with Tommy Boy Records. Um, Rizza was known as Raekwon and Jizza was known as The Genius. And they both put albums out that done okay, but not great. And they took that money and turned it into Bhutan. Right? Yeah. Uh, Gravediggers, which was Rizza's kind of horrorcore thing that he started. He basically invented that kind of death metal meets, ma- uh, meets hip hop. Right. Thing you meant to that, uh, met the man obviously, Cypress Hill, all dirty bastards. Obviously, like we talked about that second ODB album, he, him, and the Neptunes shared production, yeah. On a Raekwon, another ODB guy, uh, Tricky, oh, yeah, done a lot of work with Tricky. Uh, strangely enough, done uh, work with Doggy Dog, Doggy Dog, holy Fucking shit, no fronts, no, no fronts, tricks, no tricks, yeah, no soapbox politics. Yeah. Fucking hell, uh, it's a blast in the past. Ghost, Ghostface Killer, obviously. Uh, essentially, uh, everybody's first, everybody in Wu-Tang's first album was produced by RZA. Mm. And then, as time went on, they kind of start bringing other people in. He worked with Bjork. He worked with... Really? Yeah, yeah, he'd done stuff. I mean, I'm not super surprised by that, because Bjork yeah. will... Yeah, I can see why, mm. and yeah, I can see it working, but I just didn't, I didn't know about that. Stuff with Bjork, stuff with uh, Notorious B.I.G., uh, stuff with Big Pun, Texas, you can say what you want. No, I am surprised by that. Yeah, he's in on that. Uh, Inspector Deck from Wu-Tang, Capadonna from Wu-Tang. What's uh, he up to now? Who? Jizza, apart from playing gigs, he plays Jizza, he does his own, he has this, or he, I went to see Jizza last year. You did, yeah. And it was shite. Because mm, he done well, Liquid Ireland's, Swords live. Yeah, but then he, he. It was the grimmest. What, what was wrong with it again? The crowd or just. Uh, it's full of white people. 
the first start. That's right. Yeah. So that's your eighty percent of the problem is that it was full of white people. Uh, second problem, he had not just white people, white Irish people. White Irish people. We've talked about this. yeah. Um, the second problem was the DJ he had kept doing these fucking cuts. Oh no! And let it, us let the yeah, play. Just let it play, you fuck. Play. Like the music in Liquid Swords, like we said, it's the great for me. It's the greatest hip hop album ever recorded. Let the music play. Right, the trouble cut in every now and again. Let the music play. for the call think, Let the music play is a song I think Quincy Jones produced there you go. in the eighties. Yeah, uh, but he kept doing these cuts, and he it was like on the tour bar of every four, he'd like cut it, and no. I was fucking. He got the flow just gone. Oh, it was painful. It was fucking painful. Right. That and there was some absolute fucking mongoloid cunt standing beside me, and I ruined the whole gig. Probably gonna have to edit that bit out. No. All right, <laughs> I don't think anybody knows that is anymore. Uh, uh, who did you work with? Yeah, uh, Kanye, except for my beautiful dark uh, twisted fantasy, which is my favorite. He's done stuff on there, or is it? Yeah, yeah, Jesus or that is my favorite by Kanye. Anyway, talk yeah, about Kanye. He's done stuff on my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. Uh, he's done work with Travis Barker. He don't work with the you game. Know, uh, yeah, a lot of people work with Travis Barker in the hip hop community. I suppose Travis Barker seems to be sort of cool. Like. Um, he eventually ended up doing a shit ton. Of soundtracks for movies. Uh, I think the first big one he done was Ghost Dogs. Uh, Ghost Dog, sorry. He done the entire thing for Ghost Forrest Dog. Forrest Whitaker? Yeah. He done like all of film. that. He done all the music for that's Boat right. Oh, yeah, I remember. I think I had that on CD, that soundtrack. Yeah, that's actually yeah. worth a few bob now. Shit. Shit. Uh, he done music for Boat Kill Bills. All the music for that. Oh, you saw him on the credits. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, there's a whole, I was reading a thing where uh, when the credits were rolling, because Tarantino does a lot of the credits before the movie, and um, there was a thing where they were showing, you know, fucking, you know, strangle wank cunt and Uma Thurman and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it was, everybody's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. And the minute it came up with, like, original Scar music with a RZA, like, at the, when they were doing all of the uh, original showings of the movie, when it came up original music with a RZA, everybody lost their shit. Because it had just been so long that there was Wu-Tang stuff, that once RZA's name was on the screen, everybody who went to see it was like, oh, we're in for it now. Here we go. Mm. Uh, Kill Bill, Blade 3, he done, uh, he done a lot of work for Miley Cyrus and Nas as well. Yeah. Listen, it's, it's fucking... What's the reaching and grabbing from them at the end of their, it's not the end of their careers, but the latter. Yeah. It's, it's the fucking RZA, like, Mm. um, I don't want to talk about it too much. He's born in 1969. He's just quite possibly, no, fuck that. Top five fucking producers of all time. There's just no like or him. anyone. Uh, Any hip hop. No hip hop. Hip hop. If I'm not like, Quincy Jones over yeah, here, I like, like, oh, oh. I like I like to differentiate between yeah. hip hop and like traditional. That's fair enough. Though, instrumentation is such a huge genre. An, it's a different animal. Yeah. Uh, who's your next one? My next one is less of a producer and more of a guy who's mixing. I find insanely good. Uh, it's Evil Joe Baresi, and he produced he evil Evil Joe Baresi. Evil is the the nickname. Yeah, he produced Tool's Fear Inoculum mm. alongside Tool. Now again, I will say I'd say Tool had a like big it, hand. It wouldn't have taken this long if it was just Joe Baresi producing it, or mm. you know. So I do feel like this must have been a fucking nightmare. So he is co-producer. But it's the mixing on Fear Inoculum that just gets me every time. I That was one of the CDs I bought. I remember the only way to buy it was, uh, it's about 100 quid now, the Fear Inoculum, with the LCD the screen, screen and the thing mixing. But I got it for 50 quid, a pre-order you off. You pre-ordered it, I remember that, yeah. Um, <coughs> I remember it being such a big deal that uh, yeah. the day that came out, all the, the rest of the fucking catalogue was coming out or something, something weird like that. Or they, it came out around they, the same time. It was clever, they cleverly went, so... 
the singer Maynard James Keenan went on Joe Rogan mm. and in the most awkward scene ever decided to tweet, not having the fucking thing written and ready to fucking press play on. He wrote, we're releasing our back catalog and Joe Rogan was like, so what are you doing right now? And he was still on his phone going, we're um, just... Just telling people. Two, so just, why don't you tell Joe Rogan whose podcast you're on right now what you're doing? Cause, yeah. So he put, he realized, or sorry, he released, he, he announced that he was releasing the entire Tool back catalog, which then put every Tool album into the top mm. maybe 20 uh, on the Billboard charts, which is an incredible... Big fee. Incredible uh, fee, but just a, a phenomenally good marketing thing to do yes. for your next album that's yeah. coming out, finally. So... Uh, the mixing style on the Tool album is the Tool album the scope of the Tool album is one of the biggest albums scope wise to happen in the last 15 years maybe it's a big album he worked on uh, 10,000 Days as well Joe mm. Mercy but this was more of a slight I think it's more of a hands on anyway his approach and I was I had to check up some interviews with him he, he seems like a fucking really nice dude the three most important things to him are level, phase, and panning. Okay. And that's the things like, I'm good at mixing levels. Mm. People who are producers have told me, your level mixing of your music is good. The phase and the panning and the EQing is something I cannot do. Yeah, yeah. They'll just, everything sounds like flat, yeah. uh, unpacked, rare foil. Mm-hmm. That's what my music fucking sounds like, you know what I mean? Like, you listen to it in a distance. I mean, I can't drive the dynamics. You can't get it. Right like, I can't face. get rid of... The bits of dynamics I don't need, so I can't do that. So everyone just—it's that's obviously a fucking established skill that takes years. Oh to. Jesus Christ! That's the reason that if people come to me, go, "Why don't you just produce your synthwave stuff on, on your own?" I'm like, "Cause I don't know how to do it." And they're like, yeah. "It's easy. You get." To, I'm like, no, "Hang on, stop you there. Shut up, you. Show me something that sounds like I would want to listen to that you've done. Because yeah. otherwise, I have to show mind hand off the producer if I had the money. They are wizards, fucking wizards yeah. with this stuff, and including yeah. them. Yeah, they absolutely are. So. Joe Bressy has worked with Tool as a production engineer, sorry, a or producer, an engineer, or yeah. mixer right. with Tool, Coyus, the Melvins, Tomahawk, Pennywise. Really? Well, Pennywise, I, wonder why you I wrote it down there because I knew you'd ask. Yeah. Land of the Free. Oh, it's a good album. Sounds good. Uh, Paramount 5000. Oh. So probably their only album, yeah. Yeah. Clutch, New Model Army, <laughs> Queens of the Stone Age. <laughs> Queens of the Stone Age. Can fuck off in a big fire. <laughs> Uh, L7, The Jesus Lizard, Bad Religion, and Avenged Sevenfold, which, as much as I hate... It's a good have, mix, though. ...have great, yeah, great sound. Sounds good. He's mixed tracks, single tracks for uh, Monster Magnet. He's mixed for the band Fair to Midland, which I, I, I like a lot. Hull, Veruca Salt, Weezer, Rancid, Bauhaus. Anthrax, Skunk and Nancy. Um, that was all before coming producer. That was just mm. him mixing. Mm. And it was actually the fact that I wanted to bring him into it. He's, he's not one of my favorite producers, which is crazy, but we're never going to do a podcast on people whose mix you thought mm, was incredible. Mm. So yeah. Um, that's what I said. The, the sonicness of Fear and Oculum. Jesus, I don't know. If you're not a Tool fan, it doesn't matter. Don't don't bother. Mm. Honestly, don't bother. But listen to that on headphones or a good set of speakers and just realize just what a production masterclass that album is to get that much. One of the greatest two speakers. One of the greatest drummers playing Elvis skin with an incredible bassist and a guitarist and making sp- it's only a four piece tooler yeah. and there's not even a huge amount of vocals on that but to get the sound of the three of those guys playing together musically and to get the sound like that it's just I know it'd be easy, it's hard to get six people but 
This sounds like eight people playing. Yeah, the same it sounds song. like a fucking orchestra. It does, yeah. yeah it so. does. I know I'm not a massive Tail fan, but this album is very, Just, very It's good. one of the best yeah. produced albums I've ever heard. Yeah. And, it, and it's easy to say that now because it came out last year. Mm. So it's got all the technology on its side. It's got money on its side. It's got the best producers. And time. Band. Yeah. So um, I don't know if it would have came out earlier if they had someone else going, will you just fucking cop the fuck out? <laughs> but Tool are a difficult band. And they, I remember hearing an interview going, our next album will take a lot shorter. I'm like, that's yeah. still seven, eight years. Yeah. And unfortunately, I am not interested in what they do after this. That's <laughs> me. That's, that's their bow for me. If something comes on when I'm in my 50s. You'll have a bang at it, like. Yeah, what age will they be? Mm. What, how good will it be? Look, that's uh, Joe Bressi, mm. just for, mainly for the mixing of that album. And uh, yeah, he's a great producer as well. Who's your next one? Steve Albini. Had to be oh done. yeah, he had to be put in. Come yeah, on. had to be done. Uh, I picked Francis the Farmer. We'll have a revenge uh, off in utero. Uh, Butch Fig did the album before, right? Butch yes. Fig did Nevermind. The, apparently they weren't very happy. Uh, no. they, they liked it when they record when they recorded it. When they listened back to it, it was yeah. too sonically punchy and too too poppy. They weren't super happy with it, so they asked for Steve Albini. Um, Steve Albini is like the fucking people's champion of music. Yeah, he, like, he came up when we did a slint. Yes, on the underrated bands, yeah. he will take a tiny band and he likes them. Yeah, the the way okay, the way Steve Albini works is is very interesting. He works for seven hundred and fifty euro. Sorry, seven hundred fifty dollars a day. That's that's the that's the crazy thing. Doable, doable. So he has a flat wage. He has his own recording studio in Chicago called Electric Audio, and uh, it's a complex. It has a, a bunch of different studios in it, and he's like the guy who runs the, the whole thing. So he takes uh, uh, he takes a wage of twenty four thousand dollars a year just for being there, yeah. and then he charges seven hundred and fifty dollars a day, and that's it. That's he really also, good. He if, also, if, if you if you're a signed act, maybe yeah. he might charge more. Um, maybe what he does though, this is he's the only guy that I've read in my entire life that does this. He does not take royalties. Does not take royalties for albums he works on. Yeah, well, doesn't will not have anything to do with it. He doesn't consider. He does not consider himself to be a producer. He refutes the term producer. He is a recording engineer. He's like the uh, Ian McKay. He reminds he's me a, yeah, of that. He, he, of, but of he came production. up listening to all that stuff. Yeah, he just reminds me of having that ethos. Yeah, so his whole thing is that he likes taking on projects where he thinks the band are being hard done by the, by the record label. So he said himself, when he done this album in utero, he hated Nirvana. Really? He hated Nirvana. That's such a, that's such a great project for him to do. Yeah. Because, well, did he hate them or did he hate the, the production? You know he, what? I know f- from reading interviews that you're right. Nirvana and Crocobain hated what the sound, yeah. how the sound was so easily transferred to radio and yep. the public conscious and the charts that this was the, this was, that was the downfall of Nirvana. Yeah. So this was the last, you know, yeah. Apparently after, after Nevermind, they could, they could just ask for the world, right? This is one of the biggest albums of all time. And they asked uh, Geffen, said, listen, we want Steve Albini. He's done fucking everything that we like and we want our albums to sound like we we want his little take on it um he said he hated nirvana he said he thought nirvana sounded like rdm with a distortion pedal is were his exact words <laughs> i remember hearing that quote. yeah and he said i just I have no interest however he felt like they'd been hard done by because when Nevermind came out Kurt Cobain was living in his car yeah and 
he had read all these interviews with Court and Dave and fucking Chris and all these guys saying, this is like... They've probably more chance of Sub Pop paying them before. Yes, 100%. From, from, uh, Sub Pop made a fortune selling them yeah. to Geffen. But only after, really. Only afterwards. Yeah. So the labels were making a, a shit ton more money off Nirvana than Nirvana were making off Nirvana. That, that's the reason Steve took them on. So... Steve has this thing where he does not like uh, doing multi-channel recordings. He wants it live. Right. Um, as I said, he doesn't take royalties because he thinks he's a recording engineer, not a producer. And his whole ethos is that he will not stand in the way of the music. So he will this listen... This reminded me that I completely missed the Joe Baresi fucking approach to actual recording. Is it similar? No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. <laughs> he's so, got a thing called level phasing, which is... Um, Sorry, it's, no, it's, uh, I had it there, fucking out, it's gone. Jesus Christ, it was so <laughs> clever. That's when you went, fuck, I was like, that's cool. Yeah. That's the opposite of the way most people do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so Steve, Steve Albini has this way where he's like, okay, I want the band to sound like you're in the room with them. And uh, so he's Parallel talked, processing, yeah. sorry, was the thing. So yeah. he, he's got this thing where he talks to the band and he says, okay, well, what do you, you know, what are you looking for? You know, you're looking mm. for fucking dirt are you looking for kind of like warmth now apparently yeah. he is absolutely if somebody says i want to sound warmer or bluer he'll like kick out of the studio that's he does none of his stuff sounds warm at all mm. it's very fucking garage very much in the, so. in the garage with the fucking, very much so um not, not too much nuance put on the fucking uh sound of things sounding exactly. rounded and warm yeah. and, so yeah. he wants them live and then maybe do some overlays on top of it whatever so he was a member of big black who were a massive band yeah that's right a yeah fucking massive band the second album songs about fucking is just one of their like if you have to own it on on lp it's just one of those have to have fucking lps he had a band called rape man I remember Rape Man. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was in Shalak. Shalak is the one yeah. that were... They, that's, they that's played the a while ago. Yeah, they played... Across uh, the road. Across the road, about yeah. th- three, four years ago. Um, Jesus Christ. Uh, like I said, he doesn't take royalties. He's uh, he, he grew up listening to punk rock because he Definitely. was... Um, <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, he was in, a, I think, a car accident when he was a kid. He, he still, to this day, kind of walks with a little bit of a limp because of an accident he was in. But um, when he was in hospital recuperating, somebody gave him the First Ramones album. Right. And he heard that and he went, holy Jesus Christ, this is the way all music should be. So he, whenever he... like Rage and Speedhorn with the one Black Flag album yeah, stuck exactly, in the thing. Yeah, exactly. So they, he kind of decided, if you interviewed him today and asked him like what his biggest influence was, he'd say like, Ramones, Ramones, the first album. That's the thing about punk, right? Is there any other type of music that hits someone at an emotional no. era of their life? No. Rather than, grunge maybe, yeah, the moodiness. <laughs> But the anger is where punk was yeah. born and grew. And yeah, it just, even kids nowadays give the punk a week because there's nothing punky out now. No. It, on the radio no, or not in, really. in, even in the charts or anything like not that. Not really. So it just, that, that it's okay <laughs> to like angry fucking music. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's visceral yeah. and, and that, that works for a lot of people. Yeah. So when he signed on to make In Utro, they booked like six weeks in a recording studio. Apparently, they recorded the entire album in six days. So all of In Utro was made in six days. Now, when they handed, apparently he handed Court the masters and Court took him home and listened to them. And he was like, oh, I don't know about this. Like, cause he was so used to listening to Nevermind. Yeah. He was, he was like, like, well, what do you want, man? Cause you said you didn't want Nevermind. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know, I know what exactly. he meant. Yeah, I didn't want to go that far. Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, what will Geffen say about this? <laughs> exactly. So he, uh, Court took it home and for the first couple of weeks, he's like, I don't know about this. This is very, very different. And the record label weren't, absolutely incredibly unhappy i would say so they were so unhappy it hurt 
Yeah. But Nirvana at this stage were able to fucking say, listen, this is what we want. Take it or leave it. Exactly. You don't so apparently about fucking five, six weeks later, Kurt had decided that this is exactly the type of thing that he would like to listen to if he was a fan of Nirvana. Mm. So if he was into this band, this is exactly what I want to do. The only thing he said is he wanted the vocals a little bit louder, and he wanted the ah, bass. That's that's you know that's not a, that's not that's not something that a producer would it's go common. against. You know what I mean? He got, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So he said, I want the vocals a little bit louder, and I want the bass a little bit louder. And Steve Albini said, absolutely not. Oh really? Yeah, I said oh, no. Nope. So absolutely not what I just said. Where he went, that's alright. He he was. Yeah, everybody was, else would say, you know, yeah. Steve Albini said, no, we made it. It's perfect. It's perfect. Leave it alone. Uh, they had the fight. Bob, Bob Rock, if you remember, was the absolute yes man for yeah, the, the Metallica, yeah. some kind of monster kind of documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, whatever yeah. you want. What do you think? Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Play it backwards. Good. A lot of producers are absolutely yeah. sure. Whatever you, you want. Get paid, fuck whatever off. Whatever you want. Yeah, I'll yeah. turn the knobs till you Albini say yes. Albini is the absolute opposite. Yeah. So he said, no, we're not turning the vocals up. I'm not turning the bass up. So they had to, um, in mastering, they had to EQ the vocals up and EQ the bass up. Now, what I will say is the this version... That will, that will not play well to the full mix no. surely uh, what I'll say is that the, the version of the song that's on this playlist of Francis Farmer is from the 20th anniversary one which was actually overseen by Albini as right. well but this one sounds a little bit fuller than the original album right. um, if you have an original version of the CD or LP and listen to it in comparison to this the vocals are definitely a little bit lower and the bass is definitely a little bit lower because uh, uh, e- EQ boys they can only really do so much um, like I said, he charges $750 a day. Uh, he makes $22,000 per year just by being the gaffer of this recording studio. Yeah. He's worked with Nirvana, the Pixies, the Breeders, Godspeedy, Black Emperor, Mogwai, uh, the Jesus Lizard, PJ Harvey, The Wedding Present, Jawbreaker, Neurosis, Bush, Robert Plant, uh, Robert Plant Page, Helmet, uh, Helmet, uh, Helmet, uh, fucking The Stooges. <laughs> Manic Street Preachers, uh, The Frames. I heard a great story about The Frames and him actually from a member of The Frames. You have to know. I can't. You can't do it. I can't do it. I can't. It wasn't you, great. You can't it tell was the not story great. about... I talked to a member this. of The Frames a couple of years ago who told me stories about Steve Albini giving out about Glenn Hansard. That's oh, right. all That's I'll tell you. I don't want to hear about bitching. Cheap Trick, Slint, Love Cheap Veruca Trick. Salt, Orge Overkill, John Spencer and the Blues Explosion, Flog and Molly, Go Gold Bordello, The Sadies, Weed Eater. Right? The list goes on and on of what this comes to. He reckons he's worked on 7,000 albums. Probably. In his life. Also, in the spare time... If you don't charge much, you'll be yeah, walking 750 a bills a day, like, <laughs> and you can bang out in utero in six. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what, though? If you're charging that much <coughs> and people come to you, then you get to say yes or no about yeah. the final mix. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, we know uh, two lads who worked with him. Really? Um, who, who, who went over to Chicago to work in the studio, recorded albums with him. And, uh, two different bands from Ireland that went over to record them. In his spare time, he's a massive poker player. And uh, I wouldn't say you ranked like number 12 in the world at playing poker. And that is Steve Albini. Who's your next one? My last one is Ross Robinson. Oh. I had to pick Ross Robinson. Yeah. Even though he's sort of, he probably wouldn't have been one of my favourite producers, but I wanted to get done him in a lot, here as like, well. done a lot. He is an American producer, we know that, but he is the god considered the godfather of New Mill. Yeah. Uh, in terms of production. Jonathan Davis would be supposedly the godfather of it in terms of um, the actual bands so the first big album he produced was Concrete by Fear Factory in 1991 did Corn Corn Life is Peachy Adrenaline mm. I did one track on Adrenaline to be fair I produced one track uh, Roots by Sepultura 
Soulfly in 90, Soulfly. 90, 96 or 97. Mm. Now here's, sorry, 97. Now here's the 99 to 2003 Hit me. Block. I bet you it's the block. The 1999 to 2003, and this is only a select from Get my the selection. Fuck up. Four year, four year selection from him, right? The Burning Red Machine Head, Slipknot, Slipknot, Everything You Want to Know About Silence, and uh, Worshipman Tribute by Glassjaw. Relationship of Command it's a great by album, that Glassjaw. Yeah, it is. Relationship of Command by Other Driving, one of my yeah. favorite albums of all time. Yeah. Amen's two albums that are so Amen good. and We've Come for Your Parents. Come parents, so good. Iowa by Slipknot. And, so good. And Born Piano Island, Born by the Blood Brothers, which is a fucking. Don't know that. Check it out. It's good. Yeah. Um, he also did in 2013, I put this in for you, uh, the Therapy EP. Really? By Tech Nine. Really? Yeah. Fuck up. Yeah. He done Tech Nine gear? Yeah, he did Tech Nine's EP, Therapy EP, which is a rockier. Yeah, there was a, there was a bunch of that shit. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, you put that in for me. Did, did. He's the guy who notoriously made Jonathan Davis cry. Yeah, I must remember that story. He's like, you're out, you raped you. Yeah, get it yeah. on the track. Yeah. Get <laughs> that. Harness that energy. Yeah. Turn it into fucking mm. spoky dokes and spin that wheel. Uh, that's fucking mad, right? Uh, I can't. See that song? See that song you picked? Can't do it. No? See that Dropkick Murphy's intro. That's all enough. That's enough for me. What song did I pick? You picked fucking... Uh, I, I, sp- I spilled the full point on my notebook here. Hang on. Uh, I totally y- forgot what song I picked by Ross I'm going to tell you exactly what you picked here now. Hang on. Because I spilled... Uh, Holy literally shit. Sp- spilled the full point on me. You picked shoots and ladders. Oh, that's a great song. It's not. It's Listen. Hang that's on. That's off corn, corn. Yeah. Right, hang on. I'm going to play it. I'm going to play a section big. of it for the humans out there, right? D- tell me this is not the Dropkick Murphys. I'm going to have to skip a bit. This is, no, he, hang on, he plays the bagpipes. That was his little shtick. He can fuck over his bagpipes. Car or Jonathan Davis. Yeah, but when that new metal bit comes in, it's great. Oh, come on. It's a drop of movies. Face down in the gutter about the feet. No. It's new metal me, 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 meets bagpipes, which is a weird shtick, I'll give you that. But skip ahead. Garbage. No, I don't hate corn. Come on, that's fucking deadly. Because it's, it's new ground. That hasn't been done before. In drop three. It yeah. hasn't been done before. Anyway, look, that was early 90s, mid 90s. Well, I don't hate corn whatsoever. So I can't say the Dropkick Murphys, the Dropkick Murphys came after. Dropkick <coughs> Murphys were way before that. Not do, they weren't doing new metal meets bag types. Dropkick Murphys thankfully never done new metal. Yeah. They well, stayed shite. Um, he also played mind games with the corn drummer, Ray Luzier, and uh, didn't speak to him for about 10 years, I think it was. Then finally got an email or I think a letter off him saying by the way thanks for uh, being an absolutely horrible cunt because that is my favourite drumming that I ever did really yeah very cool he got the most out of bands by stripping them down psychologically yeah. hurting them like. yeah whatever about the production I mean, the production is grand but it's more of the approach to him getting the most out of band like the Clash London Colin throwing stuff at them getting get, getting the performance out rather than the uh, mixing and, and I know when Slipknot Slipknot moved after him they moved on to somebody else and they fucking hated it I can't remember who the fuck it was for the life of me they, after they worked with Ross Robinson they moved they, I think it might have been was it hit the ball someone else we talked about in a podcast and they fucking despised it they despised to work with him Haunted House Les. the name just completely Escapes Haunted. me. Oh yes, yes. You're not Ross Robinson. Yeah. Um 
American Jeez, why has my brain just gone flat? American recordings. Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin. They Rick, fucking hated it. That's yeah, right. Yeah, so... Well, Rick Rubin, they probably just... Like, I don't know if it's the same case. The reason I didn't put Rick Rubin in this is because, yes, he's a fantastic... Too much. Fantastic producer. I don't think he's a good producer. But, well... A- apparently, he just picks savage little no, fucking well, lads yeah, to work uh, in the studio. Nowadays, that's why mm. he's not coming up on my list. And a few... Uh, people like... I take it off this word. Dr. Dre, Timberland... Yeah. And people like that. And a whore to take some of those incredible fucking producers off. Listen. But look, that's just the way it is. There's so many people who, like, bind out maybe two albums that are, like, world class. And the rest of it's just whatever. Yeah. Who's your last one? My last one is uh, Jay Dilla. A.K.A. Yeah. J.D. Um, I don't know a huge amount about this guy, but I just yeah. know that he snuffed before his prime. Pretty much. Uh, Jay Dilla is probably the most famous hip-hop producer of all time. Um... He was born James Yancey in Detroit in 1974. Um, he was kind of taken before his time. He, oh man, he had a fucking, had this really rare blood disease. I'm going to try and pronounce it. Are you ready? I wrote it down. Fucking hell. It's called thrombotic thrombocypanic purpura. Fuck. Yeah, I know. Sounds like purple veins. Yeah. Purple veins, purple veins. Um, Very disrespectful, but yeah. also hilarious. Uh, it was a really rare blood disease he died of. Uh, he was like, he's considered to be the godfather of lo-fi hip-hop. So he had a fascination with like brand new being and this kind of like slow Erica Badu style mm. fucking sample-based grim fucking lo-fi gritty hip-hop so uh oh fucking hell it's his history is complicated there's entire documentaries about it so I'm, just, I'm gonna fly through it i find hip-hop incredibly hard to talk about discographies and yeah. where they yeah timelines and stuff because they once once so people much. in hip-hop get to work yeah they get to so work. much stuff like yeah. lads are banging out fucking 10 songs a day and there's mixtapes yeah exactly that, that's a big thing with Jay Dilla um, he was a member of Slum Village now Slum Village were one of the big breakout stars of kind of the early 90s um, in hip hop where nobody had really ever heard anything like it before it was incredibly lyrical but the production is what made everybody shit the bed um, when Tribe Called Quest heard what Slum Village sound like, they lost their fucking mind. And they were like, we have to get this fella. Mm. Whoever's making their beats. They didn't know it was a member of Slum Village. They thought it was just some good fucking lad yeah, you know, yeah. banging out tracks. It's crazy. You must be wanting to hear a band, a huge band, hears a sound and goes, I want that. And you're like, fuck, man. Mm. That, that, that's not just a sound for your band. That's it's a whole new thing. It's a whole yeah. new skin yeah. for your band. Dilla had a whole... Like his entire style. Let let me. We don't do this that often. Let me let me just give you like ten seconds of something from Jay Dilla just to, to understand. He used a machine called a, an Akai MPC, right? And uh, that was like his bread and butter. Uh, and he learned the machine so well that, like, literally blindfolded, he could just bang a sample into it, play it backwards, throw a beat on top of it. And within fucking 40 minutes, he'd have two or three songs That's a good that everybody fucking lose their mind. So, this is Jay Dilla. That's delicious.
Right, so there's 20 seconds of Jade. Um, he formed a group with Common from yeah. Detroit. <clears throat> he's actually, his most famous song, is, it's, if you go on the Spotify and type in Jay Dilla, you'll find it. It's, it I'm going to be honest with you, it's not great. It's it's Jay Dilla, Common and D'Angelo is his most famous song. Oh, D'Angelo. Yeah, D'Angelo. I like D'Angelo. Yeah, he, he, uh, Jay Dilla put an album called, the, I think it's called The Shining. and it, 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 It's popular. Um, I don't know whether, there's loads of great work on it, but it's a little bit r and D'Angelo's one of the only people I know who backed off from music for being overly sexualized by women. <laughs> <laughs> he, he said it. He had <laughs> enough. He got I was sick of being ridden into oblivion. <laughs> no, but like, I he's just... like, people are coming to my gigs that don't think, like, his music is incredible. Mm. But I think people are like, get your fucking, t-. I'm like, I'm not R. Kelly, man. Yeah, I'm going to take my top off. <laughs> Yeah. Although so, he did release one of his main albums with his top off. So he can't did. really blame yeah. yeah, D- really Dilla done it. a lot of work with Common in particular and done some uh, uh, good whack of stuff with D'Angelo as well. Um, so Dilla was in a group with Common before both of them were kind of known. Um, fucked if I remember what, what the fuck they're called. But Dilla kind of got famous for doing remixes for uh, Janet Jackson. And mm. one of his big breaks would have been when he produced over half, maybe three quarters of the Farside Lab Cabin, California. That makes sense to their sound. Yeah. Yeah. That lo-fi sound. Yeah. Like that album. Fucking hell. Jesus Christ. Does it have running on it? Yeah. Gotta keep yeah. running away. Yeah. What a so song. He, he produced like seven or eight songs on Lab Cabin, California by the Farside. He'd done a lot of stuff for Eric Badu. Again, uh, that lo-fi sound defined her that. Yeah. Yeah. Neo, Neo Soul or something yeah, like that. Yeah, New Soul, New Neo yeah. Soul. There's yeah. a million names for it. Um, he had, uh, he done stuff for Talib Quilly or Quelle. I couldn't um, even attempt. I, yeah. I know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah. But uh, Talib Quelle. Yeah, I Talib Quelle. Yeah. So he, in 2002, he got signed to MCA Records. Right. And he decided, like, listen, here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm a producer by name. Everybody knows me as a producer. But I think what I want to do I think I'm just going to rhyme on it. Because he, he'd been around rappers his whole life. He knew how to fucking rap. So he said, I'm just going to rap on it. So MCA said, well, who, well, who do you want to produce your album? So he's like, do you know what? I think I'll get Mad Lib and Kanye to produce my album for me. Wow. So he sent the word out. Two lads were like, yeah, yeah, J.D. Leslie. They're both the great boy. producers. Yeah. So Kanye and Mad Lib put an album together for him. MCA made it. Gets shelled. Nobody's ever heard it. Oh my god! Right. Why did that get shelf? Sitting somewhere on a shelf, literally somewhere, right? And um, there was some sort of restructuring within MCA, and whoever was in charge of Dilla stuff was like, "Listen, we, it's not the time for it," and it just sat there. Now, afterwards, he formed a group with Madlib called J Lib, and they put out uh, at least it's one. A good uh, mix of two, two <laughs> yeah, names. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Madlib and J Dilla together. Like, I can only imagine. Um, this is I like a lot of Jay Dilla stuff and I own a bunch of Jay, Jay Dilla stuff I own a bunch of his like he puts out these he did put out these kind of rough cut fucking LPs and mixtapes that were just like people in his gaff were like what's what's sitting on that SD card yeah and he was like oh that's a lot of bullshit and they kind of kind of like stream it off them with CDR and then it became an album you know what I mean that type yeah. of thing I have a load of that bullshit at home um, but I have not listened to this J-Lib, this Mad Lib, J-Dilla stuff, which is absolutely my mission for the next seven days. Um, that and uh, Gavin Friday's album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. With, uh, uh, Shag Tobacco. Tim, tobacco Simeone, Shag. Simeone. Um, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, he, he formed a group called J-Lib um, in 2002 with Mad Lib, and they put out an album called Champion Sound, which is out there. You, you can actually listen to it, and it's fucking bananas. Now, the song I picked 
Fuck me, what even song did I pick? We uh, just did that as well. I was like, Jesus. Yeah, it happens. Because we're not I, talking about the song or the artist, we're talking yeah, about the Yeah, I, p- I picked the song called uh, Work On It. Uh, working on it off the album Donuts by Jay Dilla and it's, Donuts it's, is I, I remember hearing Donuts a few years ago yeah. after hearing like people going you should listen to that it is Donuts is fantastic it's just he had one of these things where he he wouldn't quantize things this is why he's kind of famous he wouldn't turn on the auto quantize button on the Akai which makes it hard to mix as yeah. a DJ so <laughs> he wanted everything to have this kind of revolving door feel That's to the cool. music which is great that works for Lofi actually well, yeah, yeah, exactly. really well it's not become um, he, also had this, he had this fucking thing with somebody I can't remember who the fuck it was somebody said that like oh Jay, L- Jay Dilla is like the next fucking I can't remember it was like NWA or no it wasn't it was Pasta somebody said uh, uh, Jay Dilla is the next blah 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 and he was like, listen, these lads are rapping about like, getting their dick soaked in cars. That's not about, not what I'm into. I yeah. want that kind of brand newbian, um, Black Prince kind of feel. And intelligent rap. Yeah, 100%. Well, you know, not to say that that other stuff isn't intelligent, but it's just a style called intelligent rap. Yeah, exactly. people are talking about more... More social issues, yeah. yeah. That's what he was more interested in yeah. than the fucking getting your dick soaked in the back of a car. Um, Which so, is absolutely, again, nothing against. Um, listen, if anybody out there wants to suck my dick in the back of a car... Car drives go cars, so he'll be literally, For right now, literally. He'll be literally on the clock paying the car company and you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I got rid of my car, I'm so sad. I actually might have a new car in a few weeks. Yeah? Yeah, I'll tell Don't you. Don't buy a Renault. Story. I, uh, no, I'm not buying another Renault. Been a while since I had a Renault. <laughs> uh, so he died of thrombotic, thrombocculopenic purpura. Just call it traumatic purple deep vein thrombosis. TTP he died of um, in 2006 in his home in Los Angeles. Now he was doing a, 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 a tour with Madlib under the, under the J-Lib banner in Europe. Uh, the last tour he'd done, he finished in a wheelchair. Fuck. He just, he wanted to do it, so he finished in a wheelchair. That is, you know, man, it must be horrible to be hit with a fucking, is, it seems like a rare disease. Yeah, super rare. Now apparently all of his mates, nobody knew. Like nobody knew. He didn't tell anybody. He was able to kind of keep it together. Um, and people just thought he was just, oh, he's not well, that fella. And then all of a sudden, like, out of the blue. Talks before, it's like, oh, hang on. All of a sudden, he's just, he's dead. Fuck. That's what happens. And every last time wins. That's um, how I'd like to, that's how I'd do it. I wouldn't go on. He didn't tell I would, anyone. I wouldn't go on Facebook and I wouldn't put no. up a big post about it. No. I wouldn't uh, look for the last few likes in my dying days. Exactly. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't. <laughs> I'm not being a dick. Dick sucks in the go car. Like I'm not. I'm just. I'm a very private person. I get. I get exactly what it is. I don't want my lasting memory to be people thinking about that fundraiser yeah, you had on Facebook. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry, but I don't. Yeah. So in 2006, we lost Jay Dilla, which would have been like in the height. Uh, not in the height. He was always appreciated, but the fact that he was gone. Uh, meant the big deal to the hip hop world. Yeah, like he's not one of these people that's remembered just because he died and they're giving them no, false he praise. was incredibly like important everybody before. Was like he was going to be the yeah. best producer of hip hop. Yeah. By the time he, yeah. if he had kept going, the best producer of hip hop. Him and that fucking Akoi NBC and whatever technology they introduced him to. There's actually document that uh, uh, Revolution Hip Hop on 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 Netflix. Which is it's, brilliant. it's a great show. There's a apart like, from the host. He's an idiot. No, he's not an idiot, but he's, he's just, just... He's like, he reminds me of Zayn Lowe. Yeah. No, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. okay, he's, he's, he probably is asking great questions, but you only ever get to see him nodding with a big smile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nah, he's pretty... No, you know what? Like, if, whoever makes that show, including him, 
I respect it. I yeah, love it. He, listen, the whole show is great. He's just very private skill. There's a like half an episode all about Jay Dilla, which is very, very interesting. They interview all the people that he like. He he started off his career working off just at literally tape decks. He'd yeah. borrow tape machines off his mates and he'd literally like press play and press record on another tape See, deck. That's the difference between me and these people. I'd be too lazy to do that. Mm. And that's why I never Well he didn't know any different, this is the whole big deal. But when he gets introduced to a guy even then, like I had just four tracks and I never pushed I had a four them. Track, yeah. He pushed them yeah. to the the max the software limits yeah. you know or whatever like the, the yeah. hardware limits yeah. he, the whole deal is that he get he gets introduced um what's his name fucking mad amp or something my brain has gone the cabbage lads but he's introduced to a guy with one of these akoi and within like a day or two he's a full-blown master of the akoi mpc yeah. and everybody else is looking at him going like i can't believe this cunt is making these type of noises with this little sampler and, and beat machine um that's the end of producers i think we did a good job enough on that now to be honest with you we don't know a huge amount. We know a bit about production. Yeah. But we had to do... We, we know enough to, of, of producers that we like now at this stage. Exactly. And a lot of people that listen to the podcast, you don't need to know anything about producers, but hopefully that opens your eyes a little bit to what we like and what, what you know, it takes to be a producer in terms of dealing with arseholes, artists, and the absolute mastery and nerdiness that goes behind respectful respectable nerdiness that goes behind some of the stuff that they do on these um like, like blowies and go-karts and you got to talk about that's them. all i'm going to talk about them, for the next them, six weeks them and backing singers being the ones that don't get enough credit yes very much so anyway what you can do is you can go to patreon.com forward slash lost our podcast you can give us five fucking dollars a month it's like four euro 30 or some bullshit and you get access to a bunch of exclusive podcasts a bunch of exclusive fucking videos all sorts of absolute nonsense that we've putting up there um if you don't want to do that you cheap cunt that's perfectly fine you can go to <laughs> facebook.com forward slash Lost Art Podcast. And you can just share some shit. People have been very good. We've had a lot of shares this week, actually. People have been people super have, cool. We've guilted you into them enough now. Yeah. Uh, and maybe we'll start threatening them with leaving it. We, tre- we threaten you with fucking legal action, you cunt. Legal action. Um, listen, it's the same every week. You know what the fucking crack is. Facebook.com forward slash Lost Art Podcast. One day it'll be gone. Well, it won't be gone. I'm doing this till I die. I'm going to die in the back of a blow car. You might get deep Die in the back of a blow car. What does that mean? I don't know. I hope I die there, though. Deep vein purple thrombosis. Fucking <laughs> traumatic deep vein I hope I thrombosis. die of DDT while getting my dick sucked. What? What? Good night. In a go-car. <laughs>